this show uh, is meant solely as an exercise in education for entrepreneurs uh, i think this will be incredibly useful to so many young people who want to start a restaurant this is a crash course in restauranting Okay guys ready start Hi guys thank Hello. you for uh, flying down to Bangalore on a Friday night on a Friday night I hope this is not the worst way to spend your Friday night we'll try and make it as fun as we can uh the intent of this show is very much not to make it about ourselves uh so typically you know none of our egos come into play or what we do too much it's more focused on an entrepreneur who wants to start a restaurant i think pretty much everybody wants to open one at some point in their life they've thought of it i've thought of it i've attempted it and failed a bunch of times so we'll focus on that and through the show let's try and cover all that might be needed in opening a restaurant and every point that we can cover we'll try and approach let's start with introductions uh, let's start with pooja first hmm. tell us about you where do i start from from the beginning from the beginning <laughs> so i'm from bombay i grew up there yeah. uh, i started baking when i was 6 years old uh, with my aunt and i just thought it was really beautiful simple ingredients tell us a bit about your parents as well um my parents so my dad uh, ran his own business which was um importing ball bearings and my mom was uh, a housewife and so she used to cook and bake a lot so i used to bake with her is and there a lot of money in ball bearings so what we are trying to do is a euphemized way of asking was your dad wealthy um he wasn't initially he he started off uh, you know he was kicked out from the family so he had to start his own business it took him a lot of time to kind of find his ground um so we actually grew up with uh, you know being very conservative and being told that you can't afford this and you can't do that but they did the best that they could for us right uh, we went to a good school and then as we grew up like his business also did well and then that kind of um you know we saw him uh, at least for me that was uh, that was a great sort of thing to see what you can build from scratch and and i always knew that if i had to do anything it would never be um a job i would always do something of myself so and things got better while you were in high school or something things got better when i was in high school and then i was lucky enough to go um to study uh, hospitality in switzerland um followed by culinary school in paris and then there was a stop because then i wanted to go to australia i didn't want to come back i just wanted to go everywhere and they said it's enough so before i went to paris i kind of spoke to them and told them that this is my plan wait, um, wait. so you went to which school in bombay bombay scottish and you were there up until what what age 10th uh, standard uh-huh. then i went to jaihind uh-huh. uh, college for and you years. continued baking from age 6 along the way along the way i was i was not a very good student but i was very loved and i was a teacher's pet because every monday i was the kid who got brownies and cookies mm. and chocolates to class mm. so everyone loved me because of that mm. and i just saw the joy that dessert got you mm. know like for me that was like the start of it and back then there was not too much 
um, that you could do with, you know, you couldn't be a chef, at least for a girl that was unheard of. What kind of brownies? Uh, hmm? What kind of brownies? <laughs> <laughs> Did it help the I was my 13, question. okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> they were normal chocolate brownies. Hmm. Um, but yeah, and then uh, I actually thought I wanted to do law. So hmm. I joined law school because, you know, being in the F&B world at that point for a girl was just like, are you really going to do this? Hmm. And then uh, two weeks into law school, I said, this is not for me. And I went to them and I said, I want to quit. And they said, what would you like to do? I said, I own a cafe someday, get into hospitality. Um, I said, okay, education is important. So I picked Switzerland as a school mm-hmm. and uh, spent four years there. Worth it? Like going to Switzerland to study? Oh, man. It, was, yeah? it was incredible. Are there any options in India at all to learn baking, many, cooking? Many, now many. Especially baking now, yes. Back then, there weren't too many. But do they compare with the college you went to? I would say yes. In fact, Lavon in, in Bangalore yeah. is great. I mean, if it existed when I was younger, I would have gone there instead of going abroad. Really? Mm-hmm. I go to Lavon almost every weekend to have avocado toast and mm. coffee in the morning. Yeah. Breakfast. Really good place. Yeah. Okay, so you went to Switzerland and then? Then I went to Paris. Because in Switzerland, I worked through different departments. Realized that the pastry kitchen is where the heart really is. And then I came back to them and told them I want to go to Paris. And my dad said, it's too expensive. Not right now. And then I convinced them. I gave them a business plan and said, but I want to come back and open this thing. And I want to do this and this and this. And they somehow believed me. How expensive is it going to a cooking school or baking school in Switzerland? Um, Back then, this is now 16 years back. Um... I think the school in Paris was like 40 lakhs. A year? Yeah. And now it would be today? Maybe 60, 75. And that's your four-year course. What is it called? Uh, the uh, dip, There was a diploma in uh, French patisserie that was in Paris. Mm-hmm. And there was a degree in hospitality and international business in Switzerland. Okay. And typically somebody who goes to a college like that and if they were to try and get a job, mm-hmm. A, is it easy? And B, how much do they get paid? So, um, at least for all my, so uh, uh, the interesting statistic is that uh, about 50 to 60 people that study, go to hospitality school, don't end up in the industry. Um, They end up doing different jobs, Um, even pastry school, actually, not too many people actually have stayed back. Why is that? It's a hard, it's it's extremely hard Um, and it's tough and, you know, you, you earn a lot more if you do like a sales job or something else. Right. Um, so a lot of my uh, colleagues, friends um, got in with the international chain. So you get in with the Hyatt, Hilton, you, mm-hmm. you know, you do programs with them, mm-hmm. travel, um, go to the US, do a management training program. And then you're with that organization for 10, 15 years. Yeah, like if you were to go to college in Switzerland and come back, do you get paid more here? I think the degree of an international quality one like she has, will definitely give you a head up in the selection process. Um, But I think hotels especially have a fairly regimented salary structure. So if you're coming in at a certain position, I don't think you're going to get significantly more just because you came out of a wonderful school like hers. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to get paid the same, but I think your career path, you know, the expediency at, at the rate at which you'll grow could be faster. But I guess that's got more to do with communication. In fact, when I came back, it was really hard for me to find a job. The reason I also started my own thing right away and didn't work anywhere. Mm. Because now 14, 15 years ago, there weren't any standalone restaurants. Mm. There was there were literally like a couple of them. And then all the hotels usually just hire from the hotel schools that uh, they have. So Taj will only hire from IHM, etc. So it was, it was tough. Like I did a whole bunch of interviews and then I was like, okay, just got to do this. Okay, so Switzerland, you studied... 
hospitality a diploma which took how a degree for 4 years 4 years yeah. and then and then paris for a year and what did you study in paris diploma in french pastry for 9 months and then i worked in a chocolate shop for 3 months wow. which was amazing and then you came back to india and then i came back to india in 2010 and 2009 and um, just saw that you know there was um, it actually felt like all the hotels and restaurants kind of had the same pastry chef because you got like five desserts in in everywhere you went and there was like that blueberry cheesecake and you know and i think mocha was the only, the only one i have to say that was differentiated thank you for the and plug pooja no <laughs> but i told you i made the um, rohan and i made the that uh, chocolate uh, the vertigo it, yeah the avalanche. No, the avalanche the avalanche mocha is the chocolate avalanche was great um and so i fell in love with macarons when i was in paris mm. i came back saw that everything was too similar found that there was an opportunity here decided to test it out so started baking for my home kitchen um i was in every mall every event everything and just got people to taste it and i saw that people loved it and 2009 2010 got my first small 500 square foot kitchen start working with a team of 3 and then where was this uh, in lower parel in bombay mm-hmm. and slowly just you know started i had my little kiosk at good earth in um, lower parel which was what really helped us because it was the, the same exact uh, target ma- uh, audience and then slowly started doing caterings and parties i was teaching a lot so i was teaching baking um i enjoy doing that is yeah. that a profession that pays well to teaching it does teaching I, at a college or like personally no personally at a studio so one didn't know what i learned in paris etc so i said looked at it i saw it as a good opportunity and actually initially the classes paid the bills more than the pastry because everyone was like hmm. okay what are you going to teach us today and i would just do like week long sessions and people would fly down from all over india and come and do these classes and you found them through social media no back then there i used to have a blog this is like 13 years ago so instagram didn't exist and facebook was just like you know um i used to have a blog and then just through press yeah very interesting and then and then i'm going to nudge you to talk a little bit because <laughs> I've heard you are shy and and it's like an understatement. <laughs> She's not the getting paid by the word. <laughs> <laughs> She's not getting paid by the word here. Pooja is shy. Yeah, apparently. Like right from the get go, I think uh she was one of the most celebrated people in the industry. Nice. Thank you. She's the boss lady of macaroons in India. Boss. No, she's lady. just a boss lady. Are you focusing on macaroons? Cuz everybody's saying macaroon macaroon. Well, that's what we're known for. That's But you do everything. We else. do everything. But fifty percent of our revenue comes from macaroons. And the cookies are damn good too. Yeah, and we just started cookies. We're trying to scale and get into a longer shelf life. And Wait, you started teaching? I said, got a five hundred <laughs> square feet. I'm trying to keep like I'm a like, clear timeline. Get line. them to linear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I started teaching, and then I opened a couple of stores in Bombay. Okay. Wait, you um, had a five hundred square feet kitchen? Kitchen for the longest. You started time. teaching. Paid for the home? kitchen. No, in Lower Parel, commercial separate, kitchen. Separate commercial kitchen. Uh, so I teaching. Opened the first store in Good Earth, um, in Dagwanchi Mills. Second store, second kiosk in Palladium, um, which actually was really sweet. It was a little spot there that people. Atul Raya carved out for you. Yeah. By the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, there was, they, it was crazy. I was twenty three, and they called me, and they're like, "Walk in the mall and pick your spot." Wow. Yeah. So, I was that like I want to happen because this. they tried your macaroon yes, and they, they loved did. it so yes, much. Yes, yes, they did. 
and I'm still in Palladium now, 12 years later. We wow. still have, but we have Star of Palladium. I think it was, it was, it was just such a wonderful time. Like I was young. I, you know, I was just working constantly. I didn't ever get time to look up and see what was happening. I didn't appreciate uh, all the amazing things that were happening because you're so like focused on what you were doing. And then we opened our first cafe um, in Kolaba in 2016, um, which was 2015, 2016 which was like literally a piece of my heart. That was the dream. That was what I really wanted to do. Cafe was coffee and? Coffee, dessert, food. Mm. Um, I had a friend from Paris who came down to do the savory part of it. I did the sweet. So you started your low apparel, then you started another store and then? I started three, four stores and then the cafe. Give me the year as well. Good Earth, Palladium, Bandra, uh, Oshiwara, it was all like 2013, 14, 15. Is that a good way for people to start? Go to like an existing enterprise and collaborate? Like maybe a Good Earth, for example? Amazing. Because for home already, cooks? Yeah, because it's like a shop and shop. Your customers are already there. You don't have to spend mm. um, anything to... And at that time, social media didn't exist. So marketing mm. and acquisition was so different. Mm. Anyway, but it was great. Um, and then the cafe was the big dream, which I started in Kolaba, which was uh, really like it was a piece of my heart. And then we opened another cafe. It was a quintessential French cafe. It was beautiful. Yeah. What was it called? Uh, Love 15 Cafe. cafe. Why Love 15? It's the 15th arrondissement in Paris where I lived, where my school was, where the Eiffel Tower is. So I loved living in Paris. It was home away from home. Mm -hmm. So when I moved back, I wanted people to have the same feeling when they walked into our stores or ate any of our products to feel like they were transported there. So. Okay. And then you started all this? Started all this. Everything was going great. Raised some money to expand, to scale from customers of Low 15 that became friends that really wanted um, to be a part of the growth journey. Um, and then COVID happened, which was quite difficult. We had to shut down the cafes because it was just too challenging to keep them going. Have you been able to reopen them? No, I think we just, I just pivoted and it said, uh, I just looked at it from, you know, more of a business lens and said, what is it that, you know, I really want to do and how can I achieve scale? I do want to do a cafe someday again, maybe like a dessert cafe or a, a dessert bar. Uh, but for now, it's just focusing on how can we open in more cities? How can we get uh, our cookies and macaroons and scale them and have them everywhere? So that's what we've, we've been working on. And personal life? I'm going to focus on you for a while. Okay? <laughs> I'm like, it's interesting. Yeah. Awesome. It's like we're getting insights that we would not get. We have well. exciting news to report. Oh my God. What's my exciting news? Is there news? a new boyfriend? There is a new boyfriend. Mm. What's yes. his name? I will not say. Don't break the hearts of all the MasterChef viewers. No. Don't talk about it right now. <laughs> you didn't even cover the MasterChef thing. I haven't covered many things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting here for six hours because I want your okay. other guests to also speak. Tell us, tell us a bit about um, MasterChef. Uh, so I We're mean, going to come back to the boyfriend. I'll ask Riyaz by then. Hmm. Oh, you met him. What's his name? How did you meet him? Raya. Oh, wow. Recently. I'll tell you a funny story. Once I applied to Raya and they rejected me. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. Actual truth. Oh, how, how ago was this? Like, re like not long ago. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me not mention a time frame, but not long ago. <laughs> so... You want to tell us something else about it? No, I will not say anything more because my parents will listen to this. Watch they this. know enough by now. They're <laughs> going to question you either way. So you might as well, you know. Yeah, but I think that she doesn't want them hearing it on a podcast. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I've also written, I'm going to divert it now. Yes. I've written seven Those cookbooks. Those books, yeah. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Master yeah. Chef? 
and MasterChef is on right now. I have a podcast called No Sugar Coat, which basically I was really frustrated with everyone just saying that life is a piece of cake and life is a cakewalk. And I was like, it's really not. It's like hard and it's tough. And everyone just sees, you know, the, the 1% of success, but the backstory is quite different. So I started having these conversations with people from the F&B world and the new season is out soon. Riaz is on in this season. Are you an outgoing person? Um, wow, this podcast is really it's not a, about it's F&B. A, it's a, going it's a proper this? interrogation. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lamp over our heads. Where's that tequila that I was yeah, promised? Yeah, like, Tell me. Who are your friends? Mom hasn't asked me so many questions. I think the mom has gotten in touch with him. He's the vessel through which the questions are being asked. I spoke to her. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you something. I did. So, oh. so um, before COVID, mm-hmm. I was a very different person. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a person who thought everyone was her best friend and everyone was, I was close to everybody. And then I actually started seeing a leadership coach uh, during COVID um, and changed a lot of the way I, I view myself, the way I view life. Would you like One to tell us the, more about that? Change yourself how? Um, I always felt very um, underconfident and with the finance and business part of uh, of Low 15. Um, because I just, I, I'm a creative person. Um, the baking is great. Marketing, all of that is great. But when it comes to finance, I feel like I was never, and for most girls, right? You're never spoken to and told, this is how you should run your finances. This is what you mean. Like even all my friends now, either their husbands or their fathers invest their money. Not too many people, not too many girls actually doing that themselves. Um, and so I was always, I always felt like I didn't know enough. And I had like an accountant who stole a lot of money from me, made me really, like it, it, it put me through quite a bit. Is this something you would recommend when we went around looking at the participation of women in hmm. restaurant ownership? Hmm. The number is abysmally low, yeah. uh, which is uncanny because unlike other industries, women tend to be better cooks, right? Hmm. I mean... Historically and yeah. culturally, women have better cooked. managers. Yeah. yeah, especially multitasking. But it's it, it's not really at least now it's changing, and we we see a lot of women um, in the kitchen as well. Not only in the pastry kitchen, but also in the the hot kitchen. But 15, 20 years ago, it was unheard of. You know, it wasn't. It is a very like male dominated. The kitchen, a professional kitchen, tends to be uh, very like. Why is that though? It's long hours, it's tougher, parents don't want their daughters to do that. Like it's it's a lot of cultural, you know, I think, but it's… it's Pretty high stress. No, but can I, can we please not make it about being a boys club? Because it's not. Okay. The fact remains that it's a cultural thing. Hmm. Right? People don't want… Uh, the daughters. The daughters. But it's not. I mean, so I'm friends with all. Beti, beti, baar mein kam karti I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's but uh, the taboo is not because it's a boys' club. It is a boys' club because somebody needs to do that. But it's not because hmm. uh, women tend to, if they get into the hospitality business, they tend to gravitate towards pastry, they do. marketing, and HR. And we are seeing some women now standing up and handling the hot kitchen, which is great. We are seeing more women mixologists coming up. Mm-hmm. We the best Indian mixologist was a woman. So yeah, the glass ceilings are being broke, but it is also a cultural uh, tab. You know, a stockbroker, yeah. a soldier, 
and a chef in a busy kitchen are three of the most stressful jobs in the world. Mm. Statistical fact. Mm. So it's a high-stress environment, tends to be a lot of shouting, a little bit of that. The good thing is it's changing. Within our system, we're seeing some of our most successful restaurants, even overseas, being run entirely by uh, a female head chef. Mm -hmm. And it works beautifully. There is something about the finesse that lady chefs are able to get. There's something about an empathetic nature that they're about to generate a habitat and environment mm -hmm. that is nicer, softer, more creative. It's just natural. I might be a little, I might be, I guess, making statements based on my own experience, but I genuinely feel that this is the way, this is the effect that ladies have on any environment that they inhabit. Right. It's just the nature of the, the gender. I mean, I think they just have this, and then management. A detail-orientedness of our female chefs is markedly superior, I would say this. I would, I've noticed this. Mm. The finesse, the beauty, the delicacy, it's just there. Nice. What else changed? You said pre-COVID, post-COVID. Yeah. Um, the first thing my, my leadership coach made me do is make a list of 10 people in my life that were most important. Why? And why do they belong there? Um, and that really, like, for me, moved things around. Because then it's like, these, these are the opinions that matter. And this is really what matters. Everything else is noise. And you can talk to 10 million people and do everything else. But this is where it's at. And Did you consciously cut out everyone else? I didn't consciously cut out everyone, but everyone else became not as important as, as, as the 10 core, you know, because mm. then this is... Who is in that core? I will not say that mm. as well. You'll get me into trouble. Why? This is not like a put, put you in trouble kind of thing. See, because we have never met before, yeah. I feel like the fastest way for yeah. me to get to know yeah. you is ask you things you wouldn't normally talk about. Correct. Because then I know you really quickly. Mm. And we can cut the get to know each other time by mm. a wide margin. Mm. Would you like to name that coach? So if other people want... Sure, her name is Anna Suya Menon and she works out of Bombay. So other people can reach yeah, out yeah, and yeah, take her sure. help as well. Yeah. We did a lot of background research and, you know, we know... Like, we know the basics. This is not equitable. We don't know anything about you. <laughs> we don't know yeah. anything about you. This, this is like a forensic audit. It and is. I'm worried what all you know, what all kind of dirt you've pulled out on us. Yeah. The two of us. I don't <laughs> have any dirt. <laughs> a lot. Clean slate. A lot. A lot. Okay, super. Thank you, Pooja. And sorry for pushing you a little bit. Now you guys can do it. <laughs> it's, not <over> <laughs> it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Belly scratches Yeah. So we're going to like scratch it a little bit hmm. and come back and scratch the same wound again after some time. So Done. you get a break, some respite. So I know Zoravar a little bit. Yes. We met recently and hung out. Uh, and uh, At a wonderful cafe. At a wonderful cafe in Goa. Yes. Yeah. And I know a little Run bit. Run by another fantastic female restaurant tour. Yeah. Actually, yeah. yes. Atia. Yes, Atia. Yeah. I think she's doing a great job with health food, right? I thought the food was great. Yeah. You guys ordered so much food. I knew I just had lunch, but everything looked so good. I still dug in. Really but good. you're on a diet or something. You barely ate. I am trying. I'm trying my best. Huh. Okay. But my diets, are, I have a yo-yo life with huh. diets. You know, my diets are on and off and on and off. And I've figured out that what really works long run for me is simple portion control. Nothing is more sustainable than just limiting the amount of food that you eat. And then perhaps not eat after 6, 6.37. Hard to do in our line of business. Because I think food, the love for food is the most noblest of all loves. It's God's gift to mankind. Mm. It literally is. It's the only thing, think mm. about it, mm. that you can do three times a day, every single day and never get bored. 
There is another great thing he's given us, but I don't think we can do that three times a day. Okay, that's a close second. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, food is divine. Food is just love. And my growing up in the kind of family that I did, food was the absolute centerpiece of our existence. Mm. I mean, my dadi was actually what got my father into it. My father has carved out a niche for himself. Um, I'm so unbelievably proud of my father. I think he really brought about a renaissance for Indian food. And growing up in Jigs Kalra's house was literally all about great food exposure from a very young age. I remember I had caviar at the age of eight or nine. He made me eat something as, as, as peculiar as anchovies by hiding it in cream cheese when I was 10. Literally the kind of stuff that he would do because mm. it was his passion. Mm. He lived for food. Mm. In fact, the country's first syndicated column on food at the Illustrated Weekly with Kushwan Singh was my dad's column. Wow. Started off as a journalist, right. became a foodie, became a food writer and then he did what he did, put Indian food on the... And where did you grow up? Delhi. Mm-hmm. Grew up uh, in Delhi. Um, Has your, was your dad like a career... Uh, when did he start cooking? Like when did this become a profession for him? Journalism and then this? Yes. So, you know, he's written many books. Mm-hmm. And some of, these, some of these books, especially Prashad, has become like a common stay at catering colleges and schools. It's, it's, it's literally used as a tool to make people learn cooking. He was never a chef. He was a journalist who simply had a God-given palate. Mm-hmm. And his palate was so sublime that he could work with the great chefs of India and improve recipes. Mm-hmm. But more than that, he was a historian. He devoted his life to documenting, researching, and then, you know, recording Indian food. Mm. Because unlike French or German or, you know, Japanese, any, any of these cuisines are fairly well documented. There are standardized recipes. In India, we had this Khan Sama culture where these really good cooks and chefs want to hide recipes. So the recipes were never documented and they were all over the place. You know, even something... You have so much passion when you speak about your father. Has that relationship changed from when you were a kid to when you were a teenager to an adult to now? What works? It, from a combination of fear and awe to unbelievable respect somewhere in the middle to copious amounts of love towards the end of his life. How old is he now? Unfortunately, he passed on in 2019 after a 19-year battle uh, with stroke. So he actually had a big stroke. By the way, a lot of the viewers will think stroke is related to the heart. It's got nothing to do with the heart. It's a brain infarct. And it left his left side paralyzed. In fact, he was the most frequent flyer in India. And overnight, he became bedridden for 19 years. Wow. And it was probably the worst week of my life. I, know, I, 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 I was 22 years old. I was thrust into the wide world with all this responsibility and absolute sense of fear and ambiguity. I didn't know what was going to happen. My biggest fear was, is he going to live? Because I didn't know what a stroke was. Most of India didn't know what what a stroke was. Many people today, and I've spent a lot of time, by the way, working on, you know, trying to spread the knowledge of what a stroke is so that if it happens to your house, in in your house, God forbid, you're able to take action. This, by the way, is the biggest fear for me. Like, if somebody were to define one fear I have in life, it's probably regretting not spending time with my father when I could have. And, uh, you know, beyond a certain point, it's not the same. The quality of the time spent is not the same because they're not as mobile. They're not able to do many of the things they might have done when they were younger. What part of your current journey is his journey that you're trying to complete? Everything. 
every single thing is, is it the same recipes which are continuing they found they they are the basis and the foundation of everything i've ever done mm. whether it's modern anything related to indian of course mm. i have other brands everything but you do burgers and everything yeah right? so obviously limited but actually technically he has given me exposure to my palate he's given exposure to my palate so technically even stuff that he did not engage in he he only did indian food he focused purely on indian food it was his love his personal crusade was to put indian food on the global palate and he devoted 40 years of his life to it the best way on earth to export your culture is through your food and he did that mm-hmm. so every morning i wake up i feel a baton is being passed on to me so actually the real goal of of our company is not to just open restaurants but literally to put indian food on the global palate permanently where i can't dream i mean i cannot help but dream of a day where maybe a decade from now or even earlier every top city in the world a diner or a tourist considers an indian restaurant as one of the three dining destinations and i think indian food is the greatest cuisine on earth it has the deepest culinary philosophy it has a sophistication that is completely unparalleled it has a variety that is you know a simple state mm. will have more vegetarian food variety than entire continents that's the depth and the you know sophistication and the the sheer intellectual property that our ancestors left behind and it's up to us and it's literally our responsibility to make sure that the world recognizes it for a lot of people this relationship father son working in one business is very complicated right each is coming from a certain place of insecurity like one is trying to hold his prevalence for the lack of a other word and the other is trying to create his own identity what do you think worked for you guys if it worked as a father and son working together that you were able to manage the egos associated with a situation like this my father was a cusp between a taurus and a gemini although i don't think he had any gemini in him i think he was all bull so very tough guy very demanding person and had a big ego uh he also had a short temper and maybe genetically i got some of these aspects within me as well wo kehte hain ki ek kaman mein do talwar nahi reh sakti are you like him i am in many ways i think he's the little bit i know you you sounded like you described him just now okay. would you agree i <laughs> I I genuinely think that a, a son because of the awe in which he places his father yeah. is going to be you know heavily influenced mm. by what their father does and in some subconscious way or maybe in some genetic way I don't know starts emulating them mm. so in some ways I think it could be a subconscious reaction mm. in some ways it could be an active uh learning like I saw him solve issues in a certain way so I think oh wait a minute as a child <laughs> this is the right way to do it uh we were a fairly disciplined house mm. in some ways i do emulate him but i think growing up because he got sick and was not as actively involved in the business as he would have liked to be it worked i have a feeling i would not have been able to work for him so i think it's destiny that i was able to take the reins and then i had this incredible figure behind me as my mentor and my support watching my back and the 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 inherited goodwill that i've got from him has helped me immensely and i make no bones about it i don't think i would have had success as quickly had i not been jigs kalra's son but i don't know man i think uh, 
Yeah, you did him proud very quickly. I think he was one of the first people. I remember Punjab girl was that's where I first met him, and I said that there's something here. There's somebody, there's a bright restauranting mind behind this product because you know all the touch points beautifully covered. And at that point of time, also he had just started off on his mission to put Indian food back. It was for, till I think about. 2000 and I think maybe Seven, 2005 Indian food was everybody's guilty pleasure. Hmm. Nobody would admit to in- eating Indian food. They would only go to European restaurants. Nobody used to go out to Indian restaurants anymore. It's not cool. And then you came in and you changed all of that. And and I think that everybody only said Zorawar. You never heard Zorawar Kalra. So. Uh, You did there good was, and you made that problem. There was a pan shot that was yeah. That was a creation. The pan shot. It yeah. became a rage. It became a rage. I remember it. So you went to MBA Boston. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. MBA in what? MBA in um, information systems, MIS. Mm. And uh, why did you not know up until then that you're going to do this? Always. Then. Probably preteen years, uh-huh. so maybe when I was eleven, twelve, mm. I decided this is all I want to do. I was in awe of my father. I saw his lifestyle. I saw the way he, you know he was given respect. He was on TV. By the way, the first TV show in India ever was my father's show. While you were in awe of your father, yeah, did the ego of a young teenager also want to supersede the father? While was, you loved your father, did you want to lose the name Kalra and be called Zoravar? To be honest, never. Psychology, big fan. To be honest, never. Not even for a second would I ever have. I always thought, how can I harness? His goodwill, and how can I learn from him? Yeah, and and I was fine him being the head, huh. but my being part of the journey. To be honest, even though that's not my, I, like I would never work. For, if I were to work for anybody in this world, it'd probably be only for my father. I don't have a, a bent of mind like Pooja just said. She's she said that she she doesn't see herself working. But Zoravar, I know you. You're a very opinionated, strong-headed person who believes in a certain thing and will fight for it. So, working with your dad, there must have been points of contradiction every day. What what went on in your head at that point? So, firstly, I was very clear that this is all I want to do. I wanted to be in the food space. Mm. I used to love hotels, but I realized very soon that my passion is really for food, not really for building these big structures and you know running rooms. And the idea and the sole purpose of pursuing the MBA was to arm myself with the knowledge and the know-how. To be able to run a business at scale, mm. and I was always going to come back and be in the restaurant business. There was simply no other way around. In fact, my father was responsible for building some of the most famous restaurants. Yeah, Bukhara, yeah. Dampok. I mean, these are institutional restaurants. Also, now Punjab Grills, Jazzy, Bowtie, Masala yeah. Library, Louis Burger, Papaya, so many. It yeah, was the Roll Club. Yeah, thank you so much for that. But those are still, you know, came about later. But He used to own. He did not used to own those. Mm. And I used to think, yeah, what? It would be great if I could own the Bukhara brand. Most of these name. started beyond him's time. All of these started after he was fully. So Punjab Grill was the first one that I started while he was still hale and hearty in a way. Mm. Uh, although Farzi Cafe and all also came about that time, he was already ten years into the stroke. Uh, but even before I got into the business, he built. So at one point in time, out of the ten top grossing restaurants of India, five were made by one man. That included things like. Great Kebab Factory, Dampokht, Bukhara, Singh Sahab—so many restaurants he'd made. What worked? His passion, food, marketing, branding, a bit of location. Both. Like if you had to point at one factor that really worked at that time, what for was him? 
he was very good at rallying the entire media around his creation. And he was in that sense able to, in those days when the only thing that worked, there was no, there was not even mobile phone, mm. was, the, was the newspaper. And he had complete command of the newspaper. But then I think beyond that, it was the product. Till today, the most successful restaurant in India is Bukhara. Hasn't changed its menu. I love that place, by the way. The dal, man. Yeah. The dal and even that huge roti. Mm. They Family eat. none. It's so good. Yeah. 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 It's probably like 3,000 calories a meal though, right? Oh, it could be even more. Don't go for dinner if you want to sleep that <laughs> night. <laughs> right. And eventually, all Indians, all Delhiites, mm. just love going there for dinner. It's yeah. packed. It's packed yeah, for yeah, lunch yeah. too. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite restaurants. And, uh, but I would never go there for a dinner. Yeah. But and, it's a show off restaurant. And Lassi. Right. Mm. Lassi is like a 2,000 calories by itself. The they only restaurant where the MD of ITC gets involved if the menu needs to change. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They, and he never gets and involved the because they haven't change. changed it. <laughs> they can't even, they can't even can't. move, they can't even move a soap. Like they yeah. can't move one of their stools. Mm. They can't do that either. It's, it's, wow. it's highly regimented. Mm. And personal lives are out? I've Touch heard, wood? I don't know if I'm right or wrong. Actually, I've seen that men like yourself, good looking uh, restaurant owners and bar owners are very popular with women. No? Where have I been living? <laughs> <laughs> she's not gone. Yeah, she's, no, we're, we're, we're peers. We're her peers. So she's going to be careful. Wait, are you married? Yes. Married two kids. How long two, have you been married? 2000 and I better not get this wrong. 2006. <laughs> 31st July, no, 30th July was the marriage, 31st was the reception. 30th July. Well done. Well done. Yeah, man. That was, <laughs> so the marriage now is stronger than it's ever been. And uh, I don't ever talk about, you, I don't know how you've been able to get this out of me. Boss, kudos <laughs> to you. This mild, wonderful, soft nature in which you ask questions is making me open it's up. dangerous. I would not. It didn't work on her. I, Everything though I told you. <laughs> what about your siblings? I have one brother. Hmm. A good relationship. Uh, he lives in the US. He's now just started opening restaurants of his own. Riaz, you had a black belt in karate. No way. I had a brown belt. <laughs> <laughs> it says black on Google. Yeah. Don't read that stuff. What happened? Was it restaurants? Uh, no, I think somebody broke my nose. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A kid half my size who broke my nose. Yeah. Yeah. My nose and my ego both took a beating. Did you give up on it? No, I think it fell away. Uh, I used to. I used to play. The nose. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys, you know, this is not like one-on-one -on -one conversation. This is all four of us talking to each other. So feel free to butt in. He's a good buddy of mine. Very yeah, good buddy. Exactly. Yeah. Tell us something about him that he would not like to tell us. I'm half Parsi, so, oh, sorry, so my nose is... Um, <laughs> ah, correct. Yeah. Certain shape. A certain... Yeah, no. That, that shape went away with that. <laughs> he is a softy at heart, but he does not like to... Uh, and I mean that in a positive, very positive manner. Mm. He is a empathetic leader. I have not seen a confrontational side of his... Mm. of his yet. Mm. And I think that's a very good boss to have. But he's a good, he's a soft leader mm. at heart. Lead, I'm talking about leader. I'm not talking about confrontational from mm. outside perspective. He's a successful businessman. He cannot be that unless he knows how to look after his interests. 
Um, so that's the one thing I think. What do you think is, we can cut this part out if you like, sir. You know, if you had like, because maybe somebody's watching this who can do something about it. Three regulations that need to change, top of the pie, what would you say? Why do I need a police permission to sell a sandwich? I mean, why, why do I need to get a character certificate from a police station to say I'm worthy of selling a, a glass of beer or, or to be able to sell a sandwich? What, what business does police have in my affairs? Um, I could have a big mega store and see 10 times the volume of the amount of people coming to a restaurant. Why does restaurants need to have police license, for example? Why police do we, license, is it? Yeah, police license. We need a police NOC for everything that we do. So if you want a food license, we have to go get a police clearance. First. First, then they will First. give it to you. You want a fire NOC, you have to go to the police, then they'll give it to you. You want an excise license, you need a police NOC, then they'll give it to you. I'm guessing this is like a layer which adds a cost as well. Cost and unnecessary, right? Time. Like, what is the logic? You know, it's easy to get a mm. gun at home. Mm. You require fewer character certificates and fewer licenses and fewer checks to get a gun at home than to get a, get a liquor license or to sell a sandwich. And um, I think it's just absolutely unnecessary. And it's, so by the way, just to put things in perspective, the restaurant industry overall, is the second highest employer of human capital in India after agriculture. 10 million people directly employed. This is only gonna grow. Compounded annually, we're growing at around 21%, mm. which means every three and a half odd years, you're doubling in size. So the number mm. of people employed will double in size. So it's a very important industry. Mm. What is the purpose of having, of, of dissuading people from entering the field that is doing a noble cause? Mm. Sustenance, you're giving food, you're giving, it's a necessity. It, Technically, you just need three licenses, right? You need, you need tax. You need health to make sure that you're going to make sure that, uh, you know, people are, and you need safety, right? Mm. You need to make sure that it's fire compliant. You need to make sure that it's designed in a manner which is not hazardous to the environment, to the customers. What other licenses would you need? And why do you even need a license, for example? But yeah, we're still, we're still grappling with 36. I think after many years of struggle, I think uh, uh, we've been able to get it from 36 to 32. And, wow, uh, yeah. kudos, uh, kudos. kudos. <laughs> hey. So police hey. number one then, police license after that? Uh, so again, why didn't the police license? Why is it that um, we are regulated with our timings, right? I mean, the fact that, uh, why, why is it, again, it's again, it's an issue. Like you can only serve from this time to this time. And then you cannot serve after that or before that. Why, whereas- Is there it, a rule before that as well? Yeah. Yeah. yeah? yeah. Yes, so of course. I, I thought only in the night, no, no, like no, beyond no. 1 a.m. to a.m. No, but then I can shut at 1 and open up at yeah. 2 a.m. No, that doesn't right. go. So, um, hotels are allowed, by the way. Yeah, hotels, hotels are allowed, allowed 24 hour license. Um, the excise uh, licenses, again, crazy, uh, very highly regulated, very, very expensive. Um, it's, it's still today, restaurants are almost treated like. Uh, a rich man's indulgence, which is to be ignored rather than the infrastructure provider that restaurants are. Right? It's, it's, uh, we are literally participating in place building. We are, we are growing communities. We are bringing people together. We're not just about food and drink, but we're also about culture. There's, we, are, we double up as public spaces, which India suffers from the lack of in a big way. So we have the added responsibility of 
of public spaces where people can commune with each other. Uh, we also uh, cultural spaces where, you know, I mean, you can't go and perform in big halls, but, you know, every artist, every musician, every spoken word artist has got their break first in a restaurant. So um, there are many things that restaurants bring to the table, but uh, unfortunately, it's not seen in a favorable light right now. So you have a Parsi mother. Yes. Grew up in Bombay? Grew up born and inbred in Bombay. <laughs> what, is, yeah. what is that? Like I, I can't I've heard that. so much about Parsis and inbreeding and how the community is dying. Like why is that? Why is the community dying? Yeah. They, they don't, just don't want to get married. I think they've wisened up. No. no I Are think, you married, uh, yes? uh, Sorry? You're married? I'm married. Two kids. How long have you been married? Ten years. Parsi girl? No, no, no. So you're uh, part of the problem. <laughs> I am part of the problem. But uh, we got excommunicated from, we have, um, uh, it is actually nothing to do with religion, but mm -hmm. it's more cultural. So I think in the 8th century, when the first boatload of Parsis came in and they landed near Udwada in Gujarat, uh, they made a promise to the king then that they will never intermingle because the king said, hey, we don't want you you know, intermingling with, and there's a very famous story about how they brought a glass full of milk and he said, do you see any more space in this? And uh, the Parsi asked for sugar and he put that in and said, see, we could, there's still space for sweet people in your uh, country. Nice and they made, and, and they made, and mm. yeah, so that is the legend. Always go with the what legend. What year was this? In the eighth century, 700 something, yeah. That was the first- like 1200 years ago. Yeah, the, that's when the Parsis <coughs> came in, the Zoroastrians. Yeah. And a hundred years ago, that's when the Iranis came in, the Iruns. So all the Irani surnames are recent immigrants and they're completely like different from the Parsis who've been uh, in India for a very long time, imbibed a lot of the cultures, but have also not mingled uh, the way other cultures have, right? Mm. Because again, so if you marry outside uh, your religion, you're excommunicated immediately. Your children do not become so. And that is again from your maternal side. From paternal side, the wife doesn't become uh, a Zoroastrian, but your children can become Zoroastrian. So uh, it's very, very, counter, very counterintuitive uh, to other religions, which well, this want is, to propagate. I think that this is again, I think it's, it's become more of a cultural thing. And I think that, um, you know, true uh, in Parsi style, they do keep their word. So I think, mm. you know, almost thousand years later, they're still keeping the word. But a very wealthy community. An altruistic community, yes. Uh, don't ask where they got the wealth. I'm sure there's enough literature out there. Mm. Um, altruistic how? They donate? They give away? Altruistic, yes. They, in a sense that, you know, there's a very famous saying that you never see uh, a Parsi uh, beggar or even a, a Sikh <laughs> beggar. Uh, because the, like the Sikhs, uh, the community really reaches out and, you know, offers a mm -hmm. helping hand. And mm -hmm. there's lots of um, charitable initiatives done by, uh, you know, the big Parsi business homes. Mm -hmm. and they make sure that they provide great, good quality housing. They, they, they reach out and help and make sure that they, they <clears throat> are above poverty levels at all points of time. They take care of their own. They do take care of their own. They do take care of a lot of other people as well. Uh, you, you've seen... Uh, no, I mean, uh, we like to claim the Parsis. We love them. We're proud of them. We say, you know, wherever they were born. Yeah. Uh, 50, they are originally, I think about, I've heard under 50,000. 50, yeah, something like that. And today? 
And they just, uh, apparently fifty thousand today. 000. Oh wow! Really? The 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 one the non excommunicado ones. Uh, even I'm my community people now. say is going down. We're conkanis, something called GSBs. Mm. We all need to sit together and work out strategies. There is an element of self-deprecation in every five lines that you say. <laughs> It's kind of cool. Is it? Yeah, it gives you edge. I think I'm going to increase it to seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a DJ at Parsi weddings. At Parsi weddings, Catholic weddings, we grew. Up, I grew up in a, in a place called Baikala in Bombay, huh. uh, where we were surrounded by um, a large part. Was a Catholic community, and some of it was because of my, uh, you know, I, my mother's side. I, I actually, I was more grew up more as a Parsi than than. Are you religious, Riaz? Not at all. Right. Are you Zarawar? Yes, I am. Puja? Spiritual. Okay. Zero. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so you were a DJ, and this was like a part-time gig, college. Yeah, it's making it's, a yeah, I enjoy. You know, used to like show up with cassettes, like a, hmm. a bag full of cassettes. All rewound and kept to the song that you want because mm-hmm. you know you there was no CDs at that point of time. It was all, and you had to have mixed tapes and you go with one tape recorder and another tape recorder and you to press play. <laughs> Did you then, use the LPs? Did you use it? No, no, okay. I couldn't afford LPs. No, no. Cassettes was I could like pirate them and play whatever I wanted. We used to play Cliff Richards and um, uh-huh. um, Shaking Stevens mm-hmm. and Chubby Checker and. I, it was Ria seems like the original cool guy, right? Yeah. Mm. Like he must have been the popular yeah. guy in college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, how many like girlfriends did you have in college? I guess my fair share, <laughs> and a couple of other people's fair share. This is open about it. <laughs> and your father had a restaurant as well. Yes, he did. Berries at church. Berries, where it all started from. Parsi uh, food. No. Uh, In my Berry's was a restaurant started by a gentleman called Mr. Berry, and that's how it gets its name. It's actually Berry's, okay. But uh, it became Berry's, Berry or Bedi. B e r i. Yeah, Berry. Yeah. So, so you grew up in Bombay. Went to school. I went to school. Uh, we, we're talking about the restaurant now, or no, no, child. Ah, okay, we're going this. back. Child, okay. this is like uh, a movie, I'm right? I'm loving this. <laughs> it gives you so much insight into the person it so does. quickly. um yeah i think um we came um there was a little bit of you know financial strain i was very keen on earning my own money uh, at a very early age so my father's side comes from a community which are called uh, the khojas or the agar khanis of course the ismailis or the prince agar khan the followers of that so it's a certain sect amongst the sect um we as khojas we Have maintained a lot of our previous practices, right? And and I think that that's beautiful. So um, we have my father. You have a Sai Baba Mandir again. You know, this is not something that uh, most Muslims do. Um, we used to go to Shirdi pretty often. Every holy on Holika, we used to have a fire uh, that we used to burn. Uh, during Diwali, we used to do Chopra Pujan, which is um, you know you. Come down and you kind of write uh, in a very khoja way. By the way, that's very interesting. The the what you wrote on the book was all about you. We spoke about Agha Khan and we spoke about Kubeer Jino Bandar and we spoke about Lakshmi and so it was this kind of a hybrid kind of a religion, which which I guess um, in which many ways right? reflects what India is Pragmatic. all about, right? I mean, uh, 
It's is to to have uh, a knowledge and to have an appreciation for uh, such a diverse uh, and spiritually diverse nation that we are. I think uh, I'm quite blessed to have that uh, upbringing. A lot of your restaurants I've been to. I've been to Mocha. There's a smokehouse right down the road which yeah. makes uh, a great grilled chicken. and uh, they have some fish what is it called that memorable huh? it's good <laughs> it's good social is good slink in bardo is good boss burger i haven't tried prithvi cafe tell us a bit about that so prithvi cafe is actually a very very special place um it's part of uh, prithvi theater hmm. and um, it was set up uh, by shashi kapoor in uh, the actor the actor Mm-hmm. in memory of his uh, father prithvi raj kapoor uh, that's why it's called prithvi theater uh, and now run by his children konal kapoor and uh, sanjana kapoor um who literally are keeping you know the flag flying for the 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 drama and the you know the plays and that kind of cultural fabric i think prithvi is is a very important part of uh, the cultural fabric of mumbai at least mm. and um, i think at prithvi cafe was first started by adman pralad kakkar mm. and yeah. um, and made it very famous and it was this a very famous restaurant yeah the name is really cool yeah. papa pancho <laughs> he had one more before that i think he was running the tea all those in the news for all the wrong reasons mm. yeah that it shut down because of a rat or something mm. he got shut down because he was being hustled Come to that later. Um, yeah, so it, it was this place where uh, uh, Nasruddin Shah. You can see him on, uh, on the odd day, Om Puri, uh, Makran Deshpande sitting with a pack of four square, reading scripts, screaming and shouting, emoting, you know. And uh, every now and then, a flautist would come in with a flute and just start playing in a corner and. Uh, oh. a tabla player would come and just you know do their what own little rehearsal what kind of theater rehearsal. is it is it like that typical it's a, it's a it's a it's a small little heartfelt little space i don't think it seats more than 300 people right um best cold coffee is bollywood a big part of your lives in bombay mine yes yours as well because he was just mentioning some actors and musicians mm. oh no Shashi i, I see like a pattern in music and you which we're going to get to like going from dj to studying entertainment management in ucla oh. to still your bar still kind of like revolve around the music that is played there right i don't think it's about the music i mean i love music you know everybody does who doesn't love music right it's like saying everybody loves food everybody loves music everybody likes to have a good time um Some people don't, huh? Music? Not as much, yeah. I love music. So do I, but I know people who yeah, are they not have like varying levels of bad people. Love for music. You don't want to hang out with them, right? Yeah. Are they in your ten? No. Good. Well, <laughs> <laughs> huh. so what is the connection with music? Nothing. I wouldn't say nothing. Um, you know, I think that um, restaurants are a multi-sensory experience, right? And. Uh, <laughs> many times you know the take off point for a restaurant could be music so i would go to my architects you know ayaz and i would mm. say okay this is like you know acid jazz what kind of place would you want to listen to acid jazz mm. and that for for me would work as a really good 
kind of an entry point into mm. the tonality of the restaurant it doesn't really matter it's just that the 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 tone as rawal ray famously always says that he feels like a conductor and he's like you know making sure that all the various elements which and could be food it could be the plates it could be the weight of the glass in your hand it could be uh, the sights smells sounds all this goes to complete the experience that you have in the if you had to pick one thing that works for slink and bardo is it am i pronouncing it right yes absolutely okay. is it music location food bombay okay i think now that we're done with the intros we'll get into beginning our podcast the food we can eat and talk okay hmm. like this is very I'll casual finish. food is good huh hmm? yummy at the core of it all restaurants are also like a real estate space right that's what mcdonald's always claim to be how much you can monetize which area so if you can tomorrow start monetizing walls by displaying brands or art? selling stuff would you do putting it putting art would you do it of course would love to do that why aren't you doing it already we are doing in some cases for example in some of our bars mm. some key locations for logos mm. are kept for some beverage companies so a budweiser we have a link with budweiser we put their logos up they pay us money for it i don't put cigarettes but their itc mm. cigarette company mm. would take a space on your bar you can't sell it as far as i know but you can put it over there and they'll pay you like a decent amount of money so it, you can and then of course there are some restaurants where you can actually buy the crockery and the cutlery as well mm. an art art is lying on the walls yeah. london arts club does that i've seen that in some places london arts club does that you know the food you guys are eating which was your favorite dish each one then i'll tell you why hmm i like the keema yeah same keema for me where's the keema from oh very good Kima pa, where's the prawn from? This is from prawn. I don't know, not mine. This is Farzi Cafe. Yeah. And the prawn is from? Smoke house. Oh. So eating your food. Good. You guys are pro- proper evil people. <laughs> <laughs> this is right. in-depth. It's a good like thing I got this. So I know where it's from. Level ten shit. <laughs> We got a few options there too. Just to trick everybody. Mm. Sorry, one thing. <laughs> Talk amongst yourself. <laughs> Giving us the taste of our own medicine, huh? Mm. Mm. We want to create a template of how to start a restaurant mm. and the intricacies of it. Before that, we'll answer a bunch of questions about the industry trends, what is growing, what is not, all of that. Yeah. But just to come back to the question mm. you had asked earlier, right? We are in the real estate space. Mm. Sometimes people come to us for real estate for the price of a cup of coffee, right? But if you see where media is going right you're scrolling and you have exactly one second to capture somebody's attention to be a thumb stopper right and um uh hoardings you just you know out of home hoardings you whizzing by you either see it or you don't see it in a restaurant you're sitting for about an hour and a half mm-hmm. you have undivided attention there is a place where actual behavior modification can happen right uh you you can you can really you know in a more sensory way introduce products uh to customer i don't see why, like one day why a restaurant can't be like what a television channel is right i mean give the food for free the advertising pays for it people are doing it all over why not right especially at some point of time 
it could become a model. We're trying a little bit. We're doing a little few little experiments. There are lots of places I think that restaurants have the capability to, you know, have certain influence over your behavior or you know, influence you in a certain way. And uh, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be on the walls. It doesn't necessarily have to be commerce. But there are various ways that you can have an impact uh, and, and actually work with other brands, which, which is quite cool, especially when you're, you know, in the business of culture. Imagine if you're charging for the Wi-Fi, mm. but the food is free. It's like a you know, one of those bars, tapas bars in Chupito's bars, style bars in, in Spain, where you can go and there are tons of them, shots and liquor oriented. You pay for the drinks and the food is given for free. Mm. You could give, for example, a tech company could figure out to sell a service for mm. free and give you free coffee and free food. Is that the way forward you think for restaurants? Like no. I see in Dubai restaurants- one, Not fully. One way. One way. That's a way. I think- Socials is becoming a workplace during the day, right? Co-working, yeah. Social always been a co-working space. But do you think because you're using so much real estate inventory only at a certain time of the day, the logical way forward would be to monetize the other times for different things? Yeah. So I think the you're paying rent for 24 hours, right? Yeah. But you use it for basically 12 to 14 at max. Mm -hmm. You're paying salaries for the month you're able to utilize uh, at max, I think, eight hours a day. I think um, restaurants are the final bastion of hope for human offline social engagement. That's too much responsibility. And <laughs> it, is, it is the final bastion of hope because mm. I really think the digital world is overcoming everything else. So I think the restaurants play a key role in binding families. It's a huge responsibility, as Riaz said. But I think it is also... We're in the business of giving happiness. It's a huge responsibility because people are coming to you to celebrate life's greatest moments. To, you know, a centenary, you know, a marriage proposal, mm. you know, your break up. date, yeah, break up, yeah. date night with your first love. So I think, I really think, and I really hope, and I don't have a dystopian view of the, of the future of restaurants. I have a very positive view. Uh, and once we get into the math of what India can offer, Mm. you'll realize that we have not even scratched the surface yet mm. for restauranting or delivery in India yet. So, you know, I have a thesis for businesses which are a place of passion, like restaurant or Bollywood or like things that you consider a passion can, which can also be a profession. The odds of success, while we are trying to make this entire show for somebody who wants to start a restaurant, to help them have all the details at hand and help them increase the odds of success. Whenever you are attempting a vocation of passion, more often than not, the odds are stacked against you because there are many other people who are attempting it not with a monetary gain in mind. Because it is cool to have a restaurant. Uh, a lot of people want to retire to a bar on the beach. I know so many of my friends who knew nothing about restaurants but attempted it because it was some childhood passion or dream of theirs. So this is something to really bear in mind. So the first thing I think we should really arrive at is across the board, odds of a restaurant being successful. What do you think is an accurate number? 10%? So 20%? So is the highest morbidity rate business in mm -hmm. the world, 90% around that of restaurants fail within the first year and around 96% within 18 months. And the biggest reason you won't believe is not necessarily lack of 
passion or getting into it for glamorous, glamorous reasons is undercapitalization. People have money to build a restaurant, but they don't plan for the gestation, right? And the gestation is what can kill you. It can demotivate you. It can make the quality become bad because you don't have money to pay the bills. So you start compromising. And unfortunately, that's just the nature. I think this is a passion play, restaurants in general. It's not a nine to five. It's a lifestyle choice. You have to get into it for the right reasons. It cannot be an extension of your drawing room. If that's what you're trying to do, invest half the amount of money and make your drawing room better. Uh, you know, I think uh, yeah, a lot of people get in because, and I use this, we were talking about ball bearings earlier, and a lot of the people who do get into the restaurant industry, like made billions selling ball bearings, but nobody knows who you are, you know. You open up a restaurant. Glamour. No, it's not, it's not just glamour. So for some it's glamour, for some it's calling card. For some, it is a networking opportunity, right? For some, it is a childhood cherished dream. For, for some, it is a leg up in society. And for some, it is genuine passion, right? It's genuine. There are various reasons why people do get into the restaurant industry. My son is America, he doesn't want to come back. If you do it in the restaurant, he will come back. The most important reason you forgot. You have to marry the child. You have to marry the child, you have to settle. North India. But what we're agreeing on broadly is the odds of success for a restaurant two-year runway is something like 3-4%. Two years, 4%, you could say. There are obviously, you know, outliers. Hmm. But in general, you would say under 10% would be the number where you would not have success. So unless so you, you would bring have a specific USP that you can bring to the table, 90% you'll fail. Don't attempt it. I think there's a secret sauce, and that secret sauce is um, the last thing that Riaz mentioned, which is passion. If you're passionate about it, you'll figure it out. And if... But wouldn't all 100 attempting it think they're passionate in their own I, I don't think that higher percentage get into it with passion. No. I think not few get into it with passion. passion. If you get into your chance, again, I'm not saying that you're going to 100% succeed. Your chances of failure reduce drastically. Define passion from this lens. It's the only thing you can see yourself doing. It's something that you would do for free and then figure out a way to make money from it. I think that's passion. Janoon, madness. Hmm. Uh, something that doesn't let you sleep at night. An itch that needs to be scratched. But how long can passion also keep you going, right? Like, I'll take my example. I started this when I was 23, extremely passionate, but 14 years I've had my ups and downs of this is hard work, this is, you know, this is like, awful, this is great, I love it, do I hate it? So it's a, it's never really like that. Right? No, it's Passion never. also keeps every day, fluctuating. Every day, I wake yeah. up in the morning, I'm like, this is it, why am I doing this? So many I'm times I've met you over the last 10 now. years and you know. And every day you walk into a restaurant, you see people have a great time and you're like, damn, I love my job. <laughs> so it's a yeah. constantly conflicted yeah. <laughs> conscience, I think. Eating out patterns in India, uh, People in India eat out on average one time a week. They spend $3. People in the US eat out on average four to five times a week. In China, it's twice a week. But in China and US, they spend a significantly higher amount of money. In China, the average meal is $10 and US is $20. India is $3. Why do you think that is? Is it cultural? Why do people go out 
as little is it because you have a you can have a chef at home we live in joint families there is always food at home stigma of wasting food ghar pe ek plate kam lagana bolna padta hai ek hafte advance mein ke aaj main nahi khana khana i think that look i think that we are eating out and we are growing very very quickly uh, we were eating out four times a month in uh, i think in 2014 when we did our first reports around and i think the 2000 and uh, i think 19 report was the previous just before the, the no uh, even later no we had come up to 8 times a month and in urban area urban. we were up to about 16 times a month but give you an example singapore eats out 52 times a month Wow. Yeah. Right. So, I read that and I saw that the valuations like of restaurant chains in Singapore is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. They're billion-dollar restaurant companies. But they're not. They're still not valued the same value that rest, the companies in India are valued. Yeah. If you increase the price of a dish in Smokehouse Delhi from four hundred rupees to six hundred rupees, you rebrand your menu that way. will people perceive you to be at a higher price point hence higher quality and you get more footfall no let me let me look at tell you, look india is a very value conscious market hmm. it's not a price sensitive market it's a value sensitive market why is premiumization working so premiumization i'll tell you what premium so we we saw in delhi took some you know progressive steps they brought the you know the excise duty down on liquor right what we saw was that people while so the prices of the liquor went down in bars we reduced the prices followed suit passed on the benefit to the customers the customers didn't drink more of their liquor they upgraded to the next one you understand so where they were drinking a red label mm. they didn't say okay now you know i was i would typically have two glass two uh, red labels now i will have three mm. they said i will have black label because now it mm. that's the same amount of money that i'm spending So that's where I see premiumization happening. That people are wanting to actually get into a better quality product, or what they perceive to be a better quality mm. product. We're not getting into the merits mm. of uh, the product, but yes, that is where premiumization is happening. That people want to be consuming better. Mm. They want to be consuming. Uh, they want to go to brands. They want to go to brands that they trust, and they go to brands where they feel that it'll enhance their image, prestige, you know, or their. their quality of life so what, less so what effort. segment is if riaz was a young man mm. 20 years old started what do you mean if <laughs> <laughs> younger man <laughs> if you were starting off at 20 mm. what would you start one one option you have 1 crore rupee budget mm. what would you start a band <laughs> but you denied uh, the music connection somehow uh, i've been like coming yeah. back to that right there's something in music there okay but what kind of restaurant what kind of restaurant would i start up all over again one Highest odds of success, not passion. Ah, uh, social. I would do that because for me, I feel that uh, in this country is the best product market fit that we are seeing. We are an extremely young uh, audience. Mm. We are an audience which believes in the gig economy, uh, in the freelance economy. People are looking for places to work from. Mm. uh they are you know they are being social while they work and they are uh, working while they are being social the lines are blurring um we are looking for spaces to hang out where we can you know do some work uh, meet people we're looking for for one or better word we're looking for accessible we works and we're looking for accessible so houses um and i think that that's the role that social really lines up you could set up one in one crore uh no I, i i could 
said I could put equity and uh, the rest I would get in credit. Is it easy to get credit when you're starting a restaurant? Working capital. I don't think so. Um, it's like I said, it's such a high failure rate business that um, to go to a bank and expect them to give you, you have a better chance at jumping off an aircraft and surviving mm. than being a first time restaurateur yeah. and going to a <laughs> bank and asking for money to it's open a new restaurant. <laughs> so you partner and with somebody who has right? And then you partner with somebody who has relevant experience and then yeah. you're able to raise? I think, like I said, I think initially, it's always better to be a little careful and frugal. Mm. Um, don't go ahead and try and open a 5,000 square foot, 200 seater restaurant. Maybe start out today with a cloud kitchen or a small cafe. Why are you wasting uh, the you time in the cloud kitchen? You don't have to. I, I, love, cloud, I love cloud kitchens. Yeah, because you're using your existing no, 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 infrastructure. No, I'm not. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. I have Nobody's not. Nobody's making money in I cloud have, kitchen business. Well, actually, I beg to differ on that. But we actually... Talk, talk about cloud kitchens. Cloud kitchens, yeah. I like so we don't use any of our existing infrastructure at all. Uh, not even one Shush. restaurant. Not even a single restaurant. No, even the warehouses. So, yeah, so exactly. So you'll be surprised that we actually don't use it on purpose because at some point in time, we might segregate the two businesses and as a result we cannot have that blurring of lines so we do not use existing infrastructure separate cloud kitchens absolutely separate cloud kitchens i see domino's pizza really working i see italian food starting to work in india like it worked for garments when we sold western garment with western models like you did for page and a bunch of different companies selling a foreign product in india like a burger is working I think there's a... Is it growing faster than a biryani, for example? No, so it's never going to... Consumption patterns are never going to be there, but you have to understand that the competition and the number of players in that category are far more in biryani as opposed to burger. So if you were to open a biryani brand, say, in southern India, Bangalore, you have great local players that are these institutions. And it transitions well to tier two, tier three? It transitions well. You might have to tweak the pricing. Don't think you can sell an 800 rupee... Burger in... Uh, Are there 800 know? rupee burgers in Louis Burger? There's one. There's one. It's 3%, 4% of our sale. So it doesn't sell much. But it's what there because... What is the cost of good typically on a burger? Like cost of producing the burger? So we're running at around about 30 to 31%. I would plus say, packaging is that cost. fair for all kind of food? You should run at about 30%? The, the rule of thumb says 30%, but you can be lower. Chinese food I've seen, you can come up with slightly lower. Indian food, simply because the quantity of chicken and the muscle protein that you have to use, typically higher in, in price. And then of course, Italian food would be higher as well because the cheeses you have to import, perhaps. Uh, but you're getting great alternatives. Every alternative is available in India. So Louis Burger, Boss Burger competition? In a sense, yes. Same markets? Yeah. Similar, similar markets. Same similar price markets. point? No. I think Louis is higher. Louis would Good Flippin also be a part of this? Yeah, Good Flippin and, uh, uh, and Louis Flippin, would be think, exact. No, I think Good Flippin it would be more uh, on the Boss Burger mm. price point. It's slightly, no, lower, it's low, slightly lower also. I think it's higher. If I were to build a burger brand, there is Louis, there is Boss. There's something called Burger Singh as well, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's very Indianized burgers. Indianized burgers. Indianized. It's doing pretty well, huh? All of this, how do I create a burger brand? Well, you have to figure out the bun. <laughs> figure out the bun. Is that the key? Don't not buy the a bun. Not Don't the sauce, bun. not the protein? No, no. It also, it's a sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. You cannot, obviously, I'm making a simplest, simplistic joke out of it. You got to get the basics right. I think, um, the again, I'm getting into details. The meat to bun ratio or the vegetable patty to bun ratio is incredibly important. If you have a little, little dice or a little, you know, 
cutlet size patty in the middle and the bun is falling all over people are not going to see value indians are like extremely big buns value or conscious. like small buns <laughs> So I think a burger brand. I think he meant something else. But uh, I know, no, I, I, know I know, I know what he's meaning. No, no, no. Yeah. So we talk burger sizes are very important, right? Okay. Yeah, bun sizes are bun sizes yeah. because okay. sizes are important. Very important. Okay, when you get so my, uh, typically uh, a McDonald's burger uh, would be much smaller burger yeah, compared the to it won't be filling. It so won't, it, so it'd be a much smaller burger than what you would get at a Boss Burger or at a Louis Burger. So Louis Burger is on its way. We should try it. And so the thing is that you could actually spend. So if a McDonald's burger costs one hundred and twenty bucks. You'll actually need two to feel full, whereas at at two hundred and fifty bucks, a Louis burger, cheeseburger would be more filling, mm. comparatively. And how do you decide where to open a burger joint or where to open a patisserie, for example? Is there, a, like, I'm I come from a different world, right? Like, is there an API of restaurants together where you can gather data of what is the demographic, what kind of client is buying, how much are they spending? Is this data available? This data is available with the lot real of estate consultants, real estate consultants, and, and they there, charge you money for it. Are, there are enough uh, companies now mm. uh, which are uh, have very detailed demographic be, uh, breakups on each. Uh, Can you give us region. some examples? Just I will. I will send you a link. I don't KPN, know the names. So I'll tell you. Uh, JLL, so JLL has given there, us but data, but much more, the data much is, more focused. Yeah. So JLL. Do I don't even mapping. think that data is really that up to date or accurate. I think it's been ext- extrapolated. From a you know finite base of information, I would not like take a business decision based purely on a document given to me by a JLL. I would go with in a almost in a you know old fashioned way. I would go with my gut instinct for a physical space. With a cloud kitchen, obviously, it's it's geography is history, mm-hmm. right? With a cloud kitchen, geography is history. You're virtual, mm-hmm. so you don't really need to care about where you are. You need to be in general area. So if you know th- this area, the CBD has a large demand of burgers. You'd open somewhere, but you don't need to be on Church Street. You could but, be in one. But how do you know CBD has a large demand of burgers? Because Zomato and Swiggy's in Dabad. Do they share data? Yes, of demand. Yes, they share. So they will. They will help you. They, they will, will say. They will tell you they where tell you. if if they feel that there's a particular demand in a particular region which is underserved yeah. by that particular kind of cuisine, then they mm. will kind of come in and. They will inform you. I also know of like a, a a new coffee chain that's trying to expand and grow, and their mandate for real estate is just open next to a Starbucks. Starbucks. Are you talking about Blue Tokai? No. Third wave. I'm an investor. No, actually, what is what is interesting is is I personally feel that you know we tend to run and we tend to go after the same locations, and everybody wants to go there. It is the locations which are underserved, which has the aspiration, which has the spending power. Are the ones which will actually land up doing much better for you because you get them at better rentals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a, a way more. You know, a, your pipeline is much bigger because those those people are really really underserved. There's so many areas in 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 everywhere which are completely underserved. But you know, typical you know market intelligence will tell you, okay, these are the areas you go. I think that if you kind yeah. of use uh, the demographic data that is available, right? You know, you've done. You know what your customer looks like. You know it, uh, areas where they are, and they are in abundance. And there are no other restaurants to service them. Those are really, really good areas to go and set up shop. So, if I don't have the means to afford this data through GLL or KPMG or real estate guys, can I go sit in the competition and write down how many people are coming? Absolutely. That's that the best way to do it. That is actually the best way to do it. In fact, um, markets change; they're dynamic in nature. Right. So a great market across the street could soon become irrelevant because 
a, you know, a highway is being constructed across the street. Or another cooler mall is coming up. This happened to me many, many times where I've GK2? been part of a Defense restaurant. Yeah. Do malls uh, work? Malls are doing it. fairly well. But you know, here's the point. I've done a lot of research on this. Malls are good for incidental footfall, but cost prohibitive. And your margins in a standalone restaurant with lower incidental footfall, your margins are going to be better than in a mall. A mall has a lot of hidden things. Mm. Marketing cost, parking cost, CAM, the common area maintenance, obviously the rent, and the rent is on super area. So if you have 500 square feet, depending on efficiency, you could be paying for as much as for a thousand square feet, although you're occupying 500 square foot carpet. So it is good from a brand building perspective and it can make money, but your EBITDA margins, which is the real margin that you look at, would perhaps be better served not always, but in many cases, in standalone sites, in, and, and even better, here's the beauty of India, in tier two and tier three cities. Farzi Cafe is now in about 15 cities of India, and we're actually seeing some of our best performing stores to be coming out of tier two and tier three. Mm. They're beating Bombay and Bangalore is the best example, but it's obviously a metro tier one city. But why does every brand, every new brand, especially MNC, open its first store in Bangalore? Reasons are simple. It has got metro level purchasing power and a super sophisticated clientele with people from all over the country that are living in Bangalore. They don't go home and cook. They don't even have gas connections most probably. They go out and enjoy it. Do you have data around how much people eat out city-wise? Yeah. It is there at a fairly granular level. Mm. So if it's across the nation four times a month or one time? Eight times a month now. Twice a week in of urban course, India. Uh, cities, in urban uh, India, it's 16 times. Yeah, so if the, real estate, is 16. if the real estate cost of the city is higher and they have smaller homes, they go out to eat more. So I'm guessing Bombay will be the highest? Not necessarily. No. Actually, it's not. No? Bombay has high cost of living and it's, I mean, it's there's still a whole bunch of, you know, different demographics involved. For us, in our system, Bombay is not the number one city for uh, revenue per square foot. So the real metric you should look at is revenue per square foot. So if you've got a 10,000 square foot restaurant, you're doing a crore a month, is different from doing 80 lakhs from a 5,000 square foot, right? There's more efficiency in the smaller one. So from that perspective, I think for us, revenue per square foot is coming highest in other cities, not even Delhi, Bombay, Bangalore, Hyderabad, Kolkata. And um, it just shows the depth that this country has. I mean, just look at the numbers. One in three people today is either middle class or wealthier today. By 2030, that number is gonna become one in two. A country with 1.5 billion means 750 million people will be middle class and able to afford the products that we're selling. When does that change? Let's say- When does that ship go to come home? Mm. Yeah. When does that, that ship go to dock? 2030. <laughs> <laughs> they say, they Wait say- for In 2010, that was 2022. They say density of restaurants in India is about 10% of China and 2% of exactly US. 10%. Yeah. yeah. Exactly 10%. 10% you, yeah. you look at any chain, hmm. which is here, the numbers you take that, multiply that by 10 or 11, that many restaurants are there in, in China. China. And China consumption Sometimes patterns change. And, and real estate yeah. prices in China are far more affordable, spending power yeah. priorities higher. Yeah. So we have our challenges. Real estate prices in India are ridiculous. Mm. Right. The entire market, I don't understand the market, where the US no percentage, mm. percentage no are so high, yields are so low. But I would assume the rental you know, market is not so bad. No, it's no, terrible. It's, no. uh, so I'll give an example. I have a restaurant. Four, five percent commercial? No, oh, no. Six percent? Commercial? <laughs> uh, uh, so the, the deal I'm, that they signed with you is for- office spaces. Six percent? 
Yield you're talking about. You're yeah. talking about the yield to the yeah. owner? Yeah. Yeah, 4%, even 4%. Yeah. 4%. Residential would be 3%. Before yeah. tax. But that's because the price is so high. And your 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 interest component is yeah. 8%. So Most how expensive. is that how is that making any sense? Rent don't buy. Right? Real estate rent sense. for commercial activities such as restaurants mm. is out of whack. Mm. There is a market called Galleria in Gurgaon, where mm. I live. That restaurant's per square foot cost a restaurant, if you take 500 square foot, is more than Cannot Place, more than Bandra, more than Kolaba, more than Khan Market. Khan Market was the most expensive, and it's in Gurgaon. There are restaurants that I've signed within India that have lower, sorry, that have a higher rent per square foot than my restaurant in the US or Canada or in Trafalgar Square in England. Can you imagine a restaurant in Delhi or Bombay that has cost you more per square foot than London, whereas... But are you paying that rent because it's worth it and you're getting that much footfall? Because I'm guessing it's a supply-demand market, right? If nobody can make money out of that much real estate, people would not be paying that yeah. much. So firstly, let me be very clear. Margins in overseas restaurants mm. are either equal or a bit higher. Mm. We had a session recently at uh, one of the summits where it was me and two other restaurateurs who had restaurants overseas. And all of them came to the conclusion that margins overseas are can be either equal or higher. And the main culprit mm. is real estate occupancy cost. And the lease, li they're, they're signing leases for six, six years. They're making you invest mm. up to a million dollars in a restaurant. Mm. And, the, and the thing will only last for six years. There's no logic. Whereas overseas, it's 15 to 20 years. Right. And the... So I'll give you my use case, okay? So I had a thesis around restaurants and I started investing in a bunch of them. Broadly, my thesis was if I were to pick up many independent restaurants, what is the word you used here? CDR. C casual dining restaurants. Casual CDR. dining restaurants. If I were to aggregate a bunch of them, bring them together, create one entity which has a few hundred of them, my valuation that I get from the equity markets when I go to raise money will be a bridge or an arbitrage between the discrepancy of the 10 multiple that CDR is getting now and the 100, 100 multiple that QSR is getting. Do you think that makes sense? Only if your potential investor will see scale in each of those entities that you've wrapped up into. But one you're saying thing. there is scale because you're transitioning well to tier two, tier three. You could look at it from that perspective. Mm. But if a sophisticated investor would look at it, they would probably say that you're, as a whole, mm. as sum of a whole, mm. you definitely have this you know, large mm. um, scale. And as a result, in every city, you could eat, open each one of these 10 brands and have 10 restaurants per, per, um, per city. However, I think a more sophisticated investor will look at the scalability of each of those 10 brands. Right. This is a model that could work. Again, you know, I think uh, if you've got 10 brands that are in the CDR space and affordable and they have scale potential, like you. You, could, you could have many brands. This is what isn't, we do. Isn't we have many Phoenix, brands. Phoenix is doing? They are isn't buying Phoenix some. Is. So basically the house of brands right? is a story. See, the point is what 85% of the processes are the same for restauranting, right? You negotiating the right lease, getting the licenses, hiring, training, setting up management information systems, HR, licensing, all are the same. What changes is what's on the wall and what's on the menu, mm. right? That's 15% of the business. 85% is all the other stuff. So that Really, that 15% is just the details. But 
we are seeing that India is invest is dining out a lot more. They're going to CDRs a lot more. The market is four times as big. Is growing at at twenty percent, whereas uh, uh, QSRs have kind of hit a road bump. The the only problem is the only problem continue? is that of course because mm. we are seeing people now premiumizing. Right? We are seeing people wanting a better quality of life, a better quality of lifestyle. The problem is there have not been any precedents, and there have been too many dead bodies. Mm. in the cdr space and there have been quite a few success stories in the qsr space right so the entire value chain now is singing this one song mm. it's going to take one guy to come along change the rules and then everything else will change i think one person has already come i think barbecue nation is doing a damn good job of now getting multiples that are they're matching not a house of brands no, they are no, they are I'm a one trick about, pony i'm talking about a C, i'm talking about a cdr yeah. matching up to the scale potential of a qsr for example, I mean, uh, they also follow that process of choosing back of, you know, back and beyond kind of locations. But they have such brand pull that they're able to do crazy numbers, and they're trading at many. I mean, I know stock market goes they're, up and they're down. Listed, so they're listed, right? They're listed, and they are trading at many multiples of sale. And obviously, at one point in time, they were beating even the likes of QSR, certain QSRs in on the stock stock market. That changes every day. So don't puja uh, for your category. Mm. let's say macaroons desserts all of that do you see scope in restaurants being built around that or do you think the cafe model is more the way to go restaurants focusing on desserts like there are often times you would go to a restaurant i go to certain places where i love the dessert and i eat the food because i can eat this at the end what is the dessert contribution in in your restaurants i don't think it's very high 3.5% it's not very high but that's my restaurant. This <laughs> is different, different yeah. right? I mean, I mean, look, we had a we had a, a a cafe. I wouldn't call it a, a full-fledged restaurant, but it was a cafe. But 30% of our revenue did come from desserts, 30% came from food and the rest came from beverages. Coffee. Um, coffee and tea. Coffee is really growing, coffee right? Coffee is really growing. Is that something you would consider? Um it's a whole different I think coffee and dessert is, you know, just It's a marriage mm-hmm. that's made in heaven. I would love to do it, no? Yes. Karne ka hai. Do you think this whole trend, at least in the premium segment, mm. if premiumization is working, like Riya said, and the premium mm. segment will grow faster, this health, not eating sugar, staying away from dessert, do you think those things will become significantly bigger issues for someone like you? Hundred percent. And, and how that's, do you- that's something I'm actively working on as well. um and i'm seeing that from the last like 13 years to today um i don't know who it was but they told me that sugar is going to be the next tobacco sugar uh, already is, is the next tobacco no, don't say that jamie oliver but said listen here's the thing yeah. should be taxed like nobody stops smoking cigarettes and nobody stopped eating dessert and, and that is what you have to remember but yeah i am working on something that is going to be it's a very low base right now the health conscious people yeah, yeah. when people are going out they're going out to indulge yeah. i also feel like people want to think that they're eating healthier one really yeah can that ever truly work like can you replace sugar sugar with monk fruit or stevia you can and um, taste that good uh that's what we are attempting to do hmm. hopefully we get there by january so what is the healthier alternative if i am a young i mean it depends pastry. on what it depends on what your you know everyone has a difference so for him it could be uh, gluten for example for somebody else it could be sugar if i want to replace sugar with a healthier option which tastes just as good in your opinion what is it today Um 
I mean, see, all of them will spike your glucose levels, right? Whether you take jaggery or you take. Um, no, no, he's saying he's talking about replacement. Uh, replacement. Uh, replacement. No, no, so I'm saying that. So, not, not, so I'm how not do glucose, you? Non glucose, non-glucose, no. non-glucose sweetness. I think so jaggery would not be an option. No. Then you're saying yeah. stevia. Okay. No monk fruit. I would is the say new super product. Monk fruit is great. I would use a lot of natural. Why no sugars. to stevia? Like you, you had like a expression of disgust when I said this. It's got really bad aftertaste. Like metallic, right? Yeah, it's not. It's not very good. Wrong? There's another problem with stevia. Huh. The new study, the stabilizer used in stevia, the way we eat it, is um, supposed to increase chances of stroke significantly. But like I would aspartame. use like natural there's, sugars, there's right? Like of fruit, dates. Things that are more. But that's you know, tested glucose, or you know, sweetie. It's not. Now, it's not a sugar replacement. You're just, just changing the source and the mineral content of the yeah, glucose. Yeah, but then your options are all chemicals. Then oh, so, only monk fruit, I think. Monk for example, extract. it's a question of taste, right? If you see how many people have transitioned from Coke hmm. to Diet Coke seamlessly, and yes, the but, first, yeah, the first, the, the first four or five times, you're like, "What is this taste?" Hmm. But once you get into that kind of yeah. flavor, right, then you you stop noticing. Right. So it just becomes a thing. Like I'm going to drink diet coke now. Mm. If I get coke in, I drink coke. I'm like, what the hell is this? I don't even like it anymore. No, that's <laughs> yeah. But the point I is that, can't have coke that whole company is transitioned on this premise. What do you think the big opportunity is there in your space? If somebody were to be passionate about pastries like I, you, are, I would say for me, especially because this is something that I struggle with a lot as well, and um, I think that. For me, I still when I when I don't want to eat sugar, I still want to eat something that tastes quite similar. Um, but I'm happier to eat something that is natural sugar. Like so, if it's sweetened with bananas or dates or apples, it just feels like it's giving me a lot more than using plain white sugar. So I think that the opportunity is how can you make a cleaner, you know, indulgence which is not. Okay, so the QSR industry in US, for example, is fifty percent. In China is twenty percent. In Korea is thirty percent of the of that market. Of that market. Okay. In India is just three percent today. In UK, you saying it's it's fifty percent of the US. UK? US. Yeah, US. Yes. US. I I read this number that as much as sixty percent of overall consumption in the country is QSR. Really? Yeah. Of food? No, just consumption. Mm. Overall consumption across the GDP. Yeah. Across, across the GDP. Across the consumption specter and. See, most of the money people spend is on food, right? Like even in India, consumption income, yeah. between groceries and eating out and delivery and all of this is a large part of consumption. I think in the U.S. the rent will probably be the biggest, but you're right. I think in terms of gross disposable income spent, food would be highest. They don't cook at home. Yeah, they eat out more yes, often than anybody except the Singaporeans. So, which way do you think India will go? India is at three percent. Do you think we'll go the China way, where there seems to be a balance of dine-in? QSR, all of that working, but QSR has only grown to twenty percent and stopped there. I think that's a cultural difference. You think India is more going to mimic China than America because culturally we are similar? My vote goes to China. It's 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 look in America, fast food works because it's labor arbitrage. You go to a supermarket, you buy the ingredients, you chop it, you cook it, you stir it, you plate it, you wash the dishes after that. It's going to cost you more than going to a QSR, ordering that uh, that burger, that fry, that shake. It's going to be cheaper, faster, quicker. Mm. And in in India, it's not that yet. It's still cheaper to make food at home. It's the labor or the labor arbitrage is still not considered that important, right? It's always going to be uh, 
somebody at home who's who's happy to cook for you, who's going to happily clean the dishes for you. So that that price arbitrage is not there. So the value seekers will continue. Is that to what could actually market. help your industry eventually? I if think cost of labor goes up, it will help. go. It will go up because you see, right now one in four employable people are Indians in the world. One out of six and a half is Indian. One out of four in the world, and somewhere the demand and supply is going to equalize. Mm. We are anyway seeing um, a lot of strain mm. on the labor department. Canada has opened up its its gateways, They're taking in as many people. The Middle East is taking in, you know, shiploads of people from India. I'm, and I'm talking only about in the hospitality sector. That will so make it more expensive for you. It it will get so this this demand supply you know gap is going to. How has the cost of labor gone up for you in your restaurants? Let's say over the last five years. I think what has happened is we have look. You want to be south of fifteen percent when it comes to your labor cost. That is a broad level thumb rule. So thirty percent cost of goods. Thirty five percent cogs, mm-hmm. right? You got fifteen percent labor, fifteen percent uh, rental, fifteen percent incidentals. You want to make twenty to twenty five percent marketing. About three percent or four percent. Is that all? Yeah. What is working in marketing now? I see Pooja is very active on social media, right? Hmm. What percentage of your clientele is coming in through social media, and what is working? I'm guessing performance marketing, in the manner that worked a few years ago with Facebook and Instagram ads and Google ads. I don't think that works as well anymore, right? No. So I think for me, um, social media just started off as. something that i was just doing because it felt very natural mm. uh, the phone was like the extension of my hand mm. i was in the kitchen making a cake you were a natural you are a natural <laughs> with that I mean, reels i count so anyway so i would take but a but that's pic- working more right videos are working It's significantly now, yeah. more yeah. than pictures yeah so what works give me two hacks why what does pooja have 7 million followers where others do not what works now i don't know what worked for you uh being in the right place at the right time <laughs> Describe that. <laughs> I knew that was going to come back and bite me. But you <laughs> sow, you reap. Yeah. <laughs> Elaborate. There's one thing I've gotten from you also. I'll use it later. Um, I think it was a time when um, Instagram wasn't as uh, big as it is today. It was more organic, mm-hmm. um, and I just feel that I was in a space where I had a lot of customers. Uh, who were very popular and who are very popular and well known and have millions and millions of followers, and um, I think it was uh, also me sharing my whole experience about building Leo 15. I've always been honest, open. Did that help your personal story? Yes, hundred percent. Because people related to it, right? Mm-hmm. People love a story. They're like, okay, so I it was as much about you as it was about the picture of the food you were putting up. Exactly, and I would and I would be honest. And what made it. your story interesting? Um, I don't know. I think it was just a girl at that age Real. doing something different, um, following her passion. Like a lot of people feel like you know, like did it come across on screen your passion? Like when you spoke about food, is that something that really worked? I think so. I like to believe so. Hmm. And and for me, it was that right. Um, so two things that worked was one being at the right place at the right time, and two just uh, I think. Uh, Honestly, I don't know. I think you're cutting yourself a little short. I think her content quality was one of the I, key things. I didn't things. even know that that was content, right? Like I didn't know. I was just doing it because I loved doing it and I enjoyed doing it. I didn't 
realize that that was creating people. content and you know I was just like, I'm <coughs> documenting my life and I'm talking about what a great day I had in the kitchen someone who's working with me what's happening this dinner stuff like that and it just became like a, a window into my life is there any agency use you used anyone that helped you creating this content that other people can use no i just feel that when you it i feel when you're authentic about your story and you do it yourself it's a lot it 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 hits a lot uh, deeper than if someone else is creating it for you um even if some agency is building that content for you i think it should be driven the narrative should be driven by you. that supersedes quality of video 100% hmm. and things that we see that right now right like things that we post just randomly reels which are just like a half eaten something will do so much better than something that is orchestrated and created and product you know it's a production i want to ask you a question actually finally sure what do you look at when mm. you you said you've invested in certain restaurants and mm. cafes and things mm. what is it that you look at financials mm. first uh, at reasonable valuations i'm a stock market guy right mm. like i look at public markets very closely so when i saw qsr chains getting the multiple that they are while they are just franchisee models mm. replicating a foreign product in necessarily not a innovative way i don't think they deserve that valuation mm. i don't think dine in restaurants deserve the low valuation they they are getting as well because to be fair to them they're creating a more nuanced product than a qsr chain but okay i'll tell you something it's mm. you know india is a market without precedent right yeah. it is unique in many ways uh we spoke about uh, consistency mm-hmm. the whole point in and and you know i think a lot of qsrs have have tom tom consistency perhaps because they don't want to tell you what is going into the patty mm. or what is how much cheese is in the sauce right that is not something that you want it to be available for public consumption mm. that's something you got and then you put the garb of consistency on it the fact remains is that flavor profiles change every 100 kilometers right we in delhi we like red chili spice yeah right In Maharashtra, we like our green chilies, but we like our food little khatta mita. We like a little sanes. We in Gujarat, we like it They a little sweet. They won't get the fools. In 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 the south of India, we like black pepper spice. Right? Yeah, yeah. And we, these are the flavors that we like. And this mm. is our biryanis. Mm. Is is so the 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 Karnataka biryani is different mm. from uh, the Tamil biryani is different from the Hyderabad that you go to the the mirchika salan and mm. then you used to a bombay biryani with aloo oh, a calcutta yeah. biryani with aloo so flavors change right yeah we are a country which is differently we 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 share things you know we don't order appetizer main course our own dessert yeah we like to pick we like food fresh yeah right? we we like this it. is in a way your case against qsr it's not my case against qsr it's my case for india Right? For we, casual I think that you have to create products for India, find a new India, and You're India you have which to is create a product which is more nuanced than a QSR. A, a product which understands India more culturally. Yeah. Right? You can't force fit, and, and even even all the QSRs have come in have at some point of time what they call innovation, have had to mm. Indianize, right? And they call they calling it innovation. But the fact remains is that culturally we like to we like to share things, right? We like roti bhi hamare ya ek kar ek ek kar ke aati, you know. So do we like to see a sandwich which has been lying there in the fridge for four hours? Mm. Necessarily, we we abhor it, mm. right? Mm. 
If a roti fulka comes, one will come, then another will come, then another will come. We like our food really piping hot. The coffee that you get, we don't like that coffee. So many times you, you, you know, you, you fed doing gourmet coffee, you don't want to burn it. You don't take it over 90 degrees. But if you give an Indian coffee which is less than 100, it's going to send back here thandi. Right? So I'm, I'm not saying good, bad, ugly, whatever. I'm not judging. But this is how we consume. This is how mm. we like our food. We so like to anyone building for India, the nuanced India that you spoke about, you're saying hit a micro market, don't build anything generic that you think the entire country will like. No, I'm saying that one will deny delight in all manifestations of this thing, right? We, by nature, when we think about food, we think about variety, right? Rest but give me a definitive tip that me as a 20-year-old trying to start a restaurant, I get that India is nuanced. I mm. get that people in South, West, East, North, all like different things. If I were to go about building a restaurant business, how do I utilize that? See, definitely novelty will get you the the attention, hmm. but comfort will get you the repeat, repeat business. Hmm. Right? Where, where, and I think that that's a significant difference between your cafe business hmm. and the restaurant business. Hmm. Because in, in restaurants, we're looking for novelty, we're looking for elevation, we're hmm. looking for experience. In a cafe, we're looking for community, we're looking for hmm. convenience, we're looking for comfort. And their frequency as a use case is way higher. Mm. Like if today, I, I I love his food. I think one of, you know, some of the best Indian restaurants in India and in the world are from his table. He gives best quality service, best quality food, best quality value. You know, I, feel, I treat like a king. But tomorrow, I'm going to be like, Kali to khaya tha yaar, kuch aur khate. Chinese khate. Aaj Korean khate. Aaj kuch aur khate. You know, it, it varies. So, you will you will seek variety, hmm. but in a in a in a cafe you are not going to say curry to Starbucks gaya tha. Yeah, hmm. today coffee pee thi. Hmm. You know, you'll be it's it's something that you want to kind of hmm. reach out for automatically. Hmm. So there's a distinction between a cafe and a restaurant in that sense, and there'll always be a distinction between are you trying to sell a novel product which people is a new new thing, is it a custard filled coffee? Or am I giving you a, a moti chur laddu which is going to last forever? Or am I taking a moti chur laddu and making it into caviar? Like also Robert does. And I think there's a market for it all because we seek it by nature. Mm. We seek it. We are, we are comfortable with four mobile phone providers. We are comfortable with 20 shirt makers. We are comfortable with 30 watch makers. But when it comes to food, we want thousands and thousands of restaurants. And that's the way it is. Interesting. So the unorganized sector in India is disproportionately large compared to the US, China, Europe. If we were to, I don't have the exact numbers for this. 65 or 35. 65 unorganized. 65 unorganized. And we are assuming the industry put together is between 50 to 100 billion dollars. We couldn't find the exact number because it's hard Four to get. So about, yeah, so about uh, 40. To 50, about 50 to 55. Mm. 50, 50 billion 50 is what. Million, yeah. so, and it's growing compounded annually at 20%, 21%. CDR. So what, so, is, what is the big opportunity when unorganized transitions to organized? I think. Which will happen in, inevitably. Organized is growing at a much faster rate than yeah, unorganized. Unorganized is also growing, but mm. organized is growing faster. We are seeing movement towards brands. Mm. Uh, you know, established brands, reputed brands, people are gravitating towards it. 
But again, what is a brand, right? Mm. You know, uh, in Bombay, Sardar Pav Bhaji started off with, uh, you know, Thela. Now it's a brand, right? Mm. Uh, uh, Kirti College, Vada Pav. It's still roadside food, but it's also a brand. Right? So I think that uh, people are are wanting to move towards brands because they don't they don't want to risk that investment that they're doing in a bad quality product. Yeah, this is questions to remind me. Sorry, please continue. Yeah, that's it. I finished my piece. And do you think quality is a big factor playing into why people go for a brand because people are unsure of what food there might be? I think it plays a massive role huh. in uh, the perception of quality is perhaps one major parameter that you have to tick off before you choose which place to patronize. Mm. Convenience mm. is, I think, perhaps an equally big factor. Mm. How easily you can get to it, how easily you can park there, um, what kind of options does it serve? Can my whole family be served? See, Indians eat out in families. We don't just go husband and wife. We go with husband, wife, kids, sometimes grandparents, sometimes parents. So they want Chinese. That's where multi-cuisine does so well in India. Dada, dadi can eat Can that ever truly chicken. work, Zarawar? Like if I had a restaurant where I do Chinese, Tandoori, Japanese, Indian and something else, can I do justice to any of that? You can't. I don't. So here's the thing. The market has proven hmm. that it works. So financially, it's right going to now, be very that's well. all that's working. I get annoyed each time I see that. You, you can't know? have a specialty restaurant that you excels can. in everything. No, in the same kitchen, if you got, you can't have really the very best of Indian food. And then, you know, you suddenly have the very best of Japanese food. Because you have one chef, right? No, no, no. One main there chef? There are departments. There are sections within every kitchen. Hmm. Every section has its own But chef. if I'm making garam masala here, can I be making sushi on the side? And well. People are doing it. Well, People are doing well. it. Can they do it well? It can be done to a competent level. I don't think it can be done as well as, say, a restaurant specializing in sushi. Will you get as good as sushi at, um, you know, for example, you believe it or not, Haldirams gives sushi. Okay? And uh, will it be as good as, say, uh, a papaya or a yaucha or... Sorry, Yaucha doesn't do sushi, but like our cocoa. You probably um, will see a difference, but the market is what dictates what you serve. And multi-cuisine, even though um, it's something that uh, forms a very small part of my system, I think has its has made its space. Mm. Indians go out in families, Dada is eating something else, children are eating something else, the husband and wife are eating something else. But can a specialty restaurant perhaps produce a higher quality Probably uh, food not, experience. Right? A specialty restaurant will probably create a higher quality experience, yeah. for sure. It can. It's not It's not impossible. If you go, if you think about, like, you think of a hotel, right? Mm. Uh, let's say, take a hotel which has exceptional cuisine, and there are hotels like that. It's all held by one chef, right? Mm. Is there, no, actually, what, uh, what, what hotel has different what? disciplines. Every, every kitchen I, would have its own chef. Yes, but you have one executive chef for the whole hotel, right? You have mm. specials, but they all report to one chef. So, huh. in that sense. But I was trying to say is that um, I think the context in which you're consuming food is also very, very important, right? I mean, you can, if you are if you're consuming Japanese, then to have food in that kind of context adds value to it, right? right? If you are if you're eating um, Empire ka kebabs at, at, at that particular point of time, being in that area or sitting in your car adds context to it. So, having, how big? How big is ambience?
I think it's, I was the kind of guy who 10 years ago would say to you that food is number one priority mm. and everything else revolves around it. So mm. you can't eat the painting, you can't eat the floor, you can't eat the beautiful sculpture that you got, but you can't eat the food on the plate. Over the years, I will have to accept that ambience perhaps plays an equally important role mm. because it changes the way how you feel. Mm. But to each their own. I am the kind of person who will go and hunt for a food spot even in by lanes. On occasion. My, my favorite restaurant. On no, not I, all, sometimes you look for... Uh, ambience? ambience. I personally would for, not. Sometimes. I personally would not. Some days you would. Yeah. Some days you would look for... And the, and the culture that I'm trying to build uh, within, our, within our specific uh, company is that you have to strike a balance. So the food has to be the main mainstay. But if it looks good, it feels good. People have gone into this show-off situation. If you look at Dubai, Dubai has some, some of the greatest restaurants now. But Dubai first started becoming a city where the look and feel was perhaps more important than that was being served. Some of the best restaurants were not doing as well as the ones that, were, that looked great. Mm -hmm. It has to be a balance. It has to be a combination. Can I, can I ask a parallel question? Why does food in India never taste at par with the best restaurants of Dubai, London and stuff? Is it ingredients which are not available? Honestly, I think in many cases, Indian food tastes better. I'm not talking about food in India. Food in no, I, I, mean, I mean, food in India huh. tastes better. I can tell you that a macaroon that she makes huh. is not going to be much different. But in fact, see, even maybe superior. If Pooja was in France, she was in Paris, the access to ingredients she would have would be Certain better. Certain ingredients. Her macaroon in Paris would taste better than her macaroon Gluten in quality think, over there. I, yeah, the almond, the kind of almond you would choose and stuff like that. But... So I had, I'll so give why, an example. Why are those ingredients not available in India? Is it because the customer will not pay the price to warrant it? In some cases, yes. Yeah, but they I are think the whole, the whole supply chain, right? Like by the time you get in, get the ingredients here, the whole, by the time it reaches you. But I've wondered, we grow like all that they grow there, here as well, right? Like why is that so much better quality? But I don't here? think it is better. I do not think that is better. No, sir. I think it's, I think it's... Puja disagrees. Yeah. Go on. Can, Puja can I say like yeah. so basically, if uh. we take the same standard recipe mm. and we take it to Delhi. Mm. It'll be different. It'll taste Bombay. much better in Delhi. Yeah. I'll Compared bring it to, to Bangalore. 100%. Yeah, but if I bring it to Bombay also, from uh. Il Bangalore, to me, it'll taste better in Bangalore because the quality of ingredients available is there. Also, there is no artisanal pride right now in our agricultural mm. economy, right? Mm. We are, there's no guy who's you know, massaging uh, the feet of their cattle or, or their they, livestock. They are, but or I think that's changing. It's, yeah, but Akshay I'm talking Kalpa, about... Farmers I think a lot of artisanal farmer markets are very, very, I think there's some very, really good stuff. It's going. Really. Yes, it's going. But look at the base it's operating in. And I'm talking about look at the larger ecosystem. I mean, you don't want to get a beautiful uh, Loki right now. Oh, artisanal pride, I mean, because people don't get rewarded for that. They back, are, yeah. right now, they are, the way the entire agricultural value chain is set up, right? It is the MBAs who are going, you know, and, and going back to the villages, buying land and deploying scientific methods and they're coming up with all these beautiful things. Yes. But the larger ecosystem where, which is the Mandi system, where, you know, it's a commodity system. They are not being rewarded for artisanal products. They're not. They are more concerned with keeping their crop alive than making sure they're not going to risk their, their, their you know, they barely hand to mouth. They cannot afford to take chances with their clothes. I think the question is to you guys. Like, would you buy if you get artisanal produce at three times the cost of current produce? Why would artisanal produce cost three times? Okay, one and a half times. But why would organic cost more than inorganic? I'm guessing artisanal can't be mass so produced. Yield. Simple thing is yield. Is the yield dictates that.
I think the chemicals increase yield, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. The GMO may increase mm. yield, but uh, the the cost of producing something mm. is is actually cheaper with organic than it is with inorganic. We've done a lot of work on this one. We've gone we've gone deep into provenance. We've had we've had four provenance officers mm. going in, understanding the product. Uh, is what we get in India called organic actually so organic? The, so one is the fact that it is well you could. You could go to go back for like four years ago. Was there any pesticides used? So I mean, it's still murky. It's still transitioning. But again, another thing is that when you're importing things, right? Mm. India is an agricultural economy. Mm. So the tariffs and excise is prohibitive for, for okay. anything excise. For example, if you were to import coffee bean, and I think mm. Starbucks faces challenge, it's a hundred and eighty percent duty on coffee. It's all more than what you'd pay for a car. Because you're protecting your agricultural economy, so, so on one hand you cannot import, you know, quality ingredients. On the other hand, there is no artisanal pride, or or, or a system that rewards artisanal uh, agriculture, and then this mandi system where there is no provenance or accountability for what you're really producing. I think if I have to just look at it from a dessert lens, 14 years ago it was so difficult to find local ingredients, right? You had to use imported chocolate. You had to use everything imported to get that same quality and consistency. But today, 14 years later, you get great Indian chocolate. Uh, we use as much local ingredients as we can. Some things we still have to use that are imported, but th that change is happening. So I would say that it's. Yeah. But today, yeah. if you had to produce the quality of macaron you did at college in Paris mm. in India, how much more would it cost you? I think we are pretty much at par because yeah. we use, you know, the almond flour we use, etc. It, it is. But if you were to bring it from there and make it, or if you were to go there and make it, yeah, then I would be going selling. Go there and make it. It'll probably be. No, but the I would same, be selling it for three hundred bucks a macaron. But right? importing it and here. And how much do you sell, sell it for now? Do you think there is a market at three hundred? I mean, Ladurie exists in India, so just sell it three hundred. Yeah. yeah. I think the question I'm trying to get mm -hmm. to is that if you guys were to scatter one or two restaurants which are ultra premium in terms of produce and quality is there a market like you charge five times more than what you charge for a dish today yeah absolutely then why are you not attempting it we are already quite premium so i know but if there is a market yeah. there at 300 rupees a macaroon why are you not attempting that we did try um with Louis Burger, with the 888 rupee burger, with real truffles, real black truffle shavings. Yeah. Worked very well. At one point in time, it was 10% of our sales. Mm. It was a huge market. But then, it is a delivery burger at the end of the day. And no matter what kind of packaging you put around it, it's hard to sell a almost 900 rupee burger to somebody at home. But I think there's a huge market for the, the ultra fine dine. Uh, there are wonderful restaurants, including my own it, shameless plug. No, it's not. It's not scalable. So Masala Library, for example, is a restaurant that I have. I have one in Bombay, another one opening in Delhi, and then I have one in, in Doha, in Qatar. Now, these are all premium restaurants. The price per head is three, 4,000 rupees per head, you know, with liquor. Um, they're not scalable, mm. but here I can afford to buy the high-end product produce. I can afford to buy the high-end ingredients, <laughs> and I can afford to buy the really high-quality stuff, right? So I can afford to buy those high quality ingredients because I can sell them at a higher price. So some of these things definitely do come into play. Yeah. And, but there's a limited market. Can you buy the same tomato 
uh, or the same vegetable at a price that is three times uh, because of it being organic. And again, I think it's a yield issue. Yeah. Uh, in all, say, all Farsi cafes, it'll probably increase the price. I'll have to transfer some of that price to the consumer. So there is a market for everything, I think. But yes, at this point in time, India is not a very rich country. We cannot, we cannot be delusional. We still have a per capita income of under $4,000. Yeah. And uh, we still have 15% of the population currently below the poverty line, at least by latest estimates. I think the number is a little bit higher. But India as a market, from a food perspective, from a consumer, consumer perspective, mm. is going to be the biggest, uh, the third biggest consumer market in the world by 2030 after the US and China. Every time Zanavar speaks, I see a flag flying on the, over his head. <laughs> so patriotic. I am extremely patriotic and I also Word, bro. and I also believe in the future of this country. I think this is going to be, in fact, uh, the world's largest consumer market because of the simple rate of growth of our population by 2050. Should we take like a tiny break? Yeah. Yeah. Fancy one, golden. Yeah. This is yeah. the fancy one. Yeah. I can't wait to have the Louis Burgerman that looks amazing. Okay, <laughs> mm. guys, ready? Start. What do you guys think of celebrity owned restaurants? Mm. Farce. Mm. Absolute. Mm. They've never, Absolutely they've never worked really. Have never they? worked. Very good. You know, the only country huh? in which. You like it? Good. What? The only country in which a celebrity slash sports star run restaurant is the most popular, Sri Lanka, because their celebrities are the cricketers. Mm. So, and every other country in the world, you could take planet, planet Hollywood, okay? It had Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone as the founders, mm. bombed. So many, I'm not gonna take individual restaurants numbers. Um, if you look at, even within India, sports stars have owned restaurants. Mm. Virat Kohli. Virat Kohli. One eight. Um, Zaheer Khan, not doing well. Sachin Tendulkar. One it is one it is one it is a, might be an exception that is doing well in certain areas. I'm just saying in general they don't tend to do what that well because celebrity owned all of your restaurants, <laughs> all of the hours. So I think people see through it. Come on. Um, the only, by the way, the the most successful Should Japanese be a celebrity for owning a restaurant. Huh? You are yeah, a celebrity okay. for owning a restaurant. So that's not? true. We're definitely eternal optimists for owning a restaurant. So I think the only only restaurant that is celebrity owned that is a worldwide phenomena and is extremely successful is believe it or not Nobu, uh, partially owned by Robert De Niro. In fact, the first original investor when Chef Nobu didn't have the money was so that's that's trivia for you. But yeah, in general, I think people go to restaurants for the overall experience. Mm. Celebrity can probably pull you in for the launch, can probably pull you in for. I hosting the right tables, getting initially the buzz going, that buzz will last as much as the first or second visit. After that, the quality of the product has to speak. And restaurants which do these big launches, they call 500 people, give them free food and all of that. Does that work? Do yeah. you guys do that? <laughs> I, we do it. I do it. Mm -hmm. I think we all do it. I mean, I don't know. We definitely done that. Is in that some for your own properties. entertainment or is it for the restaurant? No, we don't, I don't think we enjoy it. That, mm. I mean, we have, mm. we have bought to death of it. But the point is that you need to have a good launch. You need to have, you know, you need to open up your social media and see pictures of your favorite, you know, influencers. So, like, so much noise, right? There, you know, it, it creates, it creates, it does create FOMO. It does create urgency. Mm. 
you know, it does create a, we need to go here. You know, and everybody's talking about it. And you pay these people who come to attend? Like, is Never. Somebody, somebody like... Hosting sometimes, hosting. Hmm. So I'll tell you, uh, you get to launch only once. Hmm. Okay? You get to launch only once. And if you don't make a big enough buzz, hmm. you probably will have a, a slower, more Black tepid, cocaine. more a slower, more tepid uh, kind of a, you know, uh, pick up. So I think that's not necessarily good, especially with the high stakes games that the restaurants are. Uh, definitely paying people to come, no way. Uh, you often have PR companies that help mm -hmm. you with it and agencies that help you with it. So the payment should be restricted to that, not celebrities coming in. It's not going to help you. It's definitely not going to help people come back. But models? Models are not paid. They're just given in kind with free liquor mm. and food. <laughs> uh, Riyaz might have other ways of... <laughs> Recovering in kind. Or I was only talking about role models. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> what about aggregator relationships? Riaz will take this. <laughs> I heard like you guys are very pally with them and somebody's not paying them anything and all of that. No, that's not true. Hmm? Please hmm. make me meet that person and let me get access to that But maybe you're paying them 10% whereas everyone else is paying 30 Who is this? Nobody's paying 10% I think as far as I know. They might be, if you do exclusivity, they might give you a lower mm. percentage. So first of all, let's mm. be honest. There are lots of differential pricing. Yeah. Which is available. How do you negotiate it? You negotiate it. Is it scale alone? Or is See, it I think the guys who signed up at a particular price point, uh. right? in the early days, they started off with 10%. They went to 12%, they went to 14%. And right now, it is at a... I think the only sustainable delivery commission that is payable is 12%. You can't pay a single rupee more than that. However, now the norm is 24 to 28%. They're signing up people at 24 and 28%. But Riaz, when you say 12%, you mean including the other costs? Because if you no, add no, I'm the only, gateway... I'm only, only talking mm. about delivery. This is a triple D model. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. You've, got, you've not just got your delivery costs, you've got your discovery costs, which means that you're paying to be visible in a carousel, you're paying to be visible in one of those collections. I think that they, they you would easily spend about 12% more on that. So you're looking at now 40%, which has gone to the aggregate. On top of that, your average discounting is at 14 to 15%. But if you don't discount, customers don't come to you, that is the way it has been gained. So how does right? this work? Like so 55% you... mm. of your margins are taken by the aggregators mm. and they can't make money. Mm. You're that kind of gospel. Mm. And it, you don't, I'm telling you, for, you would left with 45% to get COGS, packaging, marketing, which is non-app related marketing. And you got to build your brand, you got to do non-app related stuff, uh, your rentals, your salaries. But why are people going to aggregators? Because there's no, there's no other alternative. If you build your own fleet, the mm. cost would be prohibitive. Mm. Uh, there would be a risk associated with managing the manpower various things and the ease of the consumer. The consumer is so used to using those apps. It's very hard. So sometimes we try and obviously we don't get data from the aggregators. So we want to collect that data. So we offer bigger discounts to try and get that customer to order directly. And yet the adoption rates are fairly low. In it's a pre-aggregator world, how did all this work? Phone. We were doing ourselves. You're delivering yourself. And that's it was a small business. Phone and Domino's. They, they definitely have built the business but I think the margins are not sustainable. 
So when he said 12%, it's actually not 12%. It's more than that. It's 12% plus payment gateway, which you have to pay anyway, 2%. Now plus GST. It will be 12% is the only sustainable number that can but, be But you talk about including taxes because the GST is another big problem for us, right? Actually becomes the 12 becomes like 16. Yeah. And that's where your margins get completely constrained. And they then say to build relevance, the term used, um, you have to spend more money. Mm. So I think um, the platforms have definitely built this huge market and this ecosystem and made Indians fall in love with delivery, made it very easy, easy to get it, convenient. And convenience will always win. So there's no point of, it's gonna be an uphill battle to try and build your own system. Uh, if a lot of restaurants, top delivery partners, uh, sorry, top um, restaurant partners get together and build their own system might, might potentially work. Individually, it'll be hard to uh, address it and it won't make sense because adoption rates will be so low and the amount of money you'll have to spend to get those people to come to your app or your mm. landing page and order, it's going to mm. be... Mm. It's going to be trickling. Can't like a bunch of you get together because you guys have such broad chains and create your own, like a cooperative of restaurants running their own delivery? Riaz should address this. It's, it's going to become increasingly critical that we have a counterpoint. We, we are developing and working very closely uh, with ONDC mm. now. We are going to build channels. We are going to start building competencies. Mm. Because um, we have nothing against aggregators. We appreciate that they have actually helped build a demand, right? which is not competing with the restaurant business. The delivery business is competing complimentary. With, with the kitchen. It's not competing with restaurant. But while they've done that, they've taken away any hope of margin. So we are all running just to stay in the same place. So we are going to focus on ONDC. We are going to focus on our own delivery fleet. Slowly by slowly, we're going to de develop technology stacks that are going to help us do this better. Uh, and like I said, we have nothing against the aggregator, but we what we are against is the tyranny of the aggregator, where things are unilaterally changed, where uh, if you don't play by the book, you're <coughs> taken off the platform, or your your rate, your delivery radius drops, or your visibility is there, or you're just not available for customers to see. And does everybody feel this way across restaurants, predominantly? Majority. I do. It's, it's also interesting because in my office, for example, right, mm. there are all these 23, 24 year olds mm. and they order food every day, lunches or coming mm. from Zomato or Swiggy. And it's never about the brand that they've ordered from. It's like, what's the best the deal I got today? Mm. And that's what the customers now use. They make deal seekers out of yeah. customers. Mm. So it's just- It's like an addiction. Mm. Discounting has become an addiction and that's never a good thing. Whenever you build an entire system based on giving discounts, Eventually, the consumer suffers. Eventually. People will... It's at the cost of profitability. It's growth at the cost of profit. And also, sometimes I feel that the funding of that discount mm. is being done by the restaurant, mm. at the cost of the restaurant. Um, so I think there has to be some kind of a dialogue that needs to increase. Mm. And I think that's happening. I think both sides are willing to talk and mm. liaise with mm. each other in a positive, proactive manner. Mm. Um, worldwide, you've seen this happen, uh, where eventually it becomes an ecosystem that's a win-win. So let's mm. hope for that. But if they're not able to be profitable at their current margins, how will they be at one third? I'm Maybe they should stop buying rubbish companies. <laughs> <laughs> if I were to be an investor in Zomato, which is a publicly listed mm. stock, should this make me worried? If all restaurants are thinking this way, including our pastry chef? 
it's going to take some time they have adjusted a bit mm. us too and uh, mm. which is good i think see look they definitely are a, a duopoly right this is mm. definitely a growing market mm. and what they have seen is that for every 5000 restaurants that come off their platform every week mm. they get another 6000 restaurants coming in their stead mm. they don't care mm. they are agnostic to the fate of the restaurant they are only building the the habit forming activity they are building the the use case which is great the problem is that what is happening to those guys who are putting up the investment of quitting their jobs taking all their life savings and putting that into uh a uh, business because it's a business that you can at uh, 6 lakh rupees mein business set up ho jayega mm-hmm. the average guy who set up a kitchen with you know who's getting into the restaurant industry the first time entrepreneur doesn't have the sophisticated marketing techniques where he can push those products out right? he is completely dependent on visibility that comes from the from those platforms but the system will go on the discounting yeah. will go on i don't have a very dystopian view of the future i think the future there will be some form of um coherence and rationality being built in that would mean both parties would need to address situations i really think that commissions need to be addressed and i really think that data sharing should become uh something that hap- starts happening what they don't share any build. data now uh, not customer data there's enough data being shared let so me just be like i order from say a masala library and i get the food i order via swiggy zomato or any other aggregator you don't know who audit no. i don't know who you are and obviously there are ways you can put a little pamphlet that if you have a problem call us and all that but that doesn't really work and but they wouldn't like that right no they would they, not they want actively that. They would not go want through that. your uh, your packages and remove any such literature the problem is the consumer will still choose to go on zomato or swiggy and order from you that's the problem and it's not a problem it's a convenience issue mm. if i have an account like i have swiggy and zomato on my account to be honest and i'm in the delivery business extensively but i have not built my fleet and fleet and i don't really intend to build it immediately till i have a sense that this money can be recovered um i just think it has to become more of a win-win and a hand in glove scenario where we're not against each other we're working with each other but for that dialogue you want to build the fleet individually when you can get exactly a cluster fleet that's exactly my point oh you mean when we get together some of us get yeah, like together you would want ria that you would, would want puja yeah. you would want like 100 yeah. others if absolutely i think that i think that's uh, an alternative you guys just thrive uh, i use dotpay uh, but yeah thrive is another good mechanism and you can do have pinging services from you know a, a plethora of people which will tell you where to go how to go you can even give tracking services it's what all is, available what is happening but with the, the discovery element sorry is is better on these the platforms apps. right when you know when you have the loyalty when you know exactly what you want mm. there is a use case to go to your you know your app because now you can do it on whatsapp mm. you got catalogs available you can call if you don't want the hassle you want the convenience all that data stack is available to you on various platform but the discovery component and the the discounting component that is the catnip that people yeah. are coming back for but how yeah. can they ever discount in a manner that you the originator of the product can discount they can never compete with that right like if you built a platform yourself to deliver your cost price is 30 you can sell it 30 but a aggregator can never discount as much as you right it's taken years of of taking hits hmm. on the bottom line and being and sustaining that hmm. to be able to 
get to that critical mass where now your delivery guy is 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 you know that his salary is paying for sub and paying for it more this is basically a fixed cost versus uh, a variable cost model right restaurants don't have those deep pockets they don't even have those margins mm. where they can afford to pay for those things so it is a little bit of a loop but eventually i think that there will there will be some uh, way out of this is that the same for you puja with desserts and muff- muffins and macaroons and everything i mean the the good thing is we have higher margins so what margins do you operate on 18 20% yeah, but not 20 and 30 18 18 20% is what what name should i make the checker seriously that's pretty good yeah oh that's and that's despite using the best ingredients but now i'm going to take this 300 rupee macaron idea yeah i'm going to do it go with it you should gold on it yeah put gold put gold on it yeah okay so is there a tip like if i'm a new restaurant and i'm going to swiggy and zomato i know it's ridiculously obnoxiously high the margin for whatever reason market fundamentals how do i negotiate खुद को कल बुलंद इतना कि रेट लिखने के पहले एग्रीगेटर खुद प्रोडक्ट से पूछे कि बता तेरी रजा क्या है यू द ओनली वे ऑफ डूइंग दिस इज टू हैव अ रियली रियली स्ट्रॉन्ग प्रोडक्ट टेल द एग्रीगेटर्स टू सिट ऑन इट जस्ट डू योर बिजनेस क्रिएट अ ग्रेट डिमांड क्रिएट अ ग्रेट थिंग दे विल कम टू यू एंड दे विल डू इट एट योर प्राइस यू कैन बट अगेन इफ यू आर ऑल्सो रैंड प्रोडक्ट if you have a very very solid product mm. which has great recall which has which has a far following which is becoming you know very very trendy people are reaching out and want that you're not on that that's something that they will come to you and say okay we want you exclusively then then you can start playing so up why is actually why can't you tell swiggy i will if you crack a deal with swiggy at 15% and tell zomato unless you do 12% i'll only sell on swiggy why wouldn't that work i don't i think i think people have tried that Huh. And I don't think it was going to work throughout. So they've also wisened up to that. But I think more importantly, do they work together? Do they collude? No, they don't. What they don't? They don't even hire from each other. From what I know, neither do we. Uh, <laughs> we were still better off. Our we relationship don't. is we're not a duopoly. We do not. We are multi multiopoly. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So I think um, there are institutions. For example, you have truffles in Bangalore. They can demand whatever uh, rates they can because they're an institution. They're a legendary restaurant. A regular burger joint cannot do that. one way that i would recommend to people that if they're in a certain geography is that you could go the route of being exclusive if you offer that there is a potential of asking for lower percentages because you're in a way alleviating the uh, ability of that restaurant to be sold that brand to be sold on another platform that was one way i don't think you can play people against each other and that's not going to work but i i also think it's it's what what we are doing is also working with swiggy to create products which yeah. is which is that fill a need yeah because they come with a, come to us and they say okay these are the products that are really working we only have one person instamart especially we only have one person doing this if you can create this i know that i can occupy yeah where there's scarcity where there's a demand supply yeah imbalance they're really really quick to try and fill up those gaps i've tried the ondc app what is it called magic pin or whatever magic pin that yeah. brings your cost down from 20 change percent to 4 5% right yeah. what is the issue with it right now so ondc is definitely a very is a democratization and a commoditization of delivery now here's the beauty there are enough third party aggregators that can responsibly and effectively 
take your product from your cloud kitchen or your restaurant to the end user. There are enough of them now. They, however, perhaps are not as seamless because MagicPin or Paytm, who have these seller apps on ONDC, are still relying on these third-party people. They're not employees of MagicPin or employees of Paytm. They're third-party delivery people. So that extra charge is there, but the way to circumvent that is to be able to charge the consumer a, a, a fee. And I think the fee for three kilometers is 50 rupees. So if you're within three kilometers, you charge 50, it's a little bit more charge 70. I think people, and yeah, the advantage is because- are coming down, right? The cost of delivery is coming down because as we move into- No, but that's electric, my point, no. Electric so that ONDC is a viable right now, Right now, the cost or the actual hardcore cog Okay, cogs of delivery is at 22 rupees. It's not... It's For not, what? 22 huh? rupees what? 22 rupees is the co cost of delivery. For is what, what distance? You, is what you will pay your guy. It's your average, this thing per, of 5 kilometers. Irrespective of distance. Yeah, 22, 22 rupees is your cost. Per kilometer or you, what are you saying? 22 rupees is your cost of delivery for that package and come back. But there has a distance to it, right? 5 kilometers. If it's 100 kilometers away, you can't. 5 kilometers hmm. is 22 rupees, right? Your, the, the problem which is happening is that ONDC is coming through seller apps. Yeah. And that's only as good as the fact that how Magic Pin is doing, right? The point is that ONDC, once we start creating our own ecosystem on ONDC and we start working regional-wise where we start sharpening our delivery uh, capabilities, our what is called online on-demand delivery, right? Because that's what these guys have really cracked. It's on-demand delivery. Dunjo is very good. Shadowfax is very good at delivery, last mile delivery, but not necessarily on demand. The trick is to get the meal into their hands in 15 minutes or less. After it leaves from the kitchen, it has to be able to get to that person. But that will happen with scale. Right. Incredible innovation though, right? ONDC. It's beautiful. It's a democratization. Yeah. The beauty of the Indian tech stack is just amazing. Yeah. It is, yeah. It is fascinating, I think. He's a friend of mine, Nandan, who's kind of like... Worked yeah. around a lot of these. CTO in, of India. Uh, incredible. <laughs> CTO of India, literally. Incredible human being. Yeah. And also, also like keeps the ecosystem together. Adhar was a, also his? Huh? Adhar was his yeah, brainchild? Yeah. So he has a dinner uh, once in a month at UPI. home. And he wow. makes sure we all catch up and it's an Fabulous. ecosystem. He's a, he's, a, he's a true Indian. Yeah. He's a true guy who cares about this country, about... <laughs> you know, about making this country more technically savvy and a world leader. And his wife, like very few people know Rohini, but she does so much work in climate and water and uh, incredibly driven wow. couple and their daughter and their like entire family. <laughs> okay, uh, cloud kitchens, do they work? Riaz had a very strong We'll have reaction. totally different, so... But that's interesting. Yeah. Cloud kitchens work for where either you are a very strong brand that you've built over the years. You come from a certain pedigree and have the sophistication enough to understand sophisticated marketing tools mm. right? and CRM and, and to be data-driven and analytically driven. It's very, very difficult for the average. If, what, if you think the mortality rates in the restaurant businesses are high, the mortality rates in the cloud kitchen business are, are twice as high. Because you, the data which we've seen, like I said, so we actually five thousand restaurants a month wow. are going off platforms. There's five thousand broken dreams every month, wow. right. and they just go off because they cannot manage. Because how will you manage where fifty-five percent of your margin 
is being taken by somebody. I don't think it's 55%. How? I think the numbers are not there. Push come to shove, things things stay as they are today. Will you build your own fleet? Will you have to build your own fleet? I think it's good to have a good balance. I definitely would like a scenario where um, 25 to 30% mm -hmm. of our delivery orders are done directly. From a data perspective, I want to have a direct contact with my consumer and get feedback more closely. I think that's the sweet spot for me. Mm -hmm. So top top dishes, chaat, biryani, sweets, or top cuisines, Chinese, Indian. Do you think the odds of success are higher building here or building something new altogether as a new person starting a restaurant? Pedigree always helps. No, are you saying nothing. that? Are you, what, I'm a new guy. I've yeah. saved up a little bit of money. I, I was working in a job last five years. Should I hit North Indian, Chinese, South Indian, or chaat, chicken biryani, sweet? From a popularity perspective. From from a success, odds of success perspective. Here's the the, the double-edged sword here, I think, is that though cuisines like North Indian and biryani might be more popular than, say, a burger and pizza. Pizzas are now equally popular. The problem also remains that there's a lot more competition, mm. a lot more players in these fields. Mm. So it's hard to say. We've seen, for example, a tougher challenge selling pizzas than burgers. Whereas the demand for pizzas is far more than burgers in India. It's like literally like our dinner and our snack and our lunch. Mm. Pizzas has reached that. Mm. There are fewer burger places. And as a result, mm. if you can make a difference, make a better product, mm. you can stand out. And the competition is lower, supply is lower of rest from the restaurant side. Whereas in pizzas, you're competing with the big boys. And although, you know, Domino's uh, is, is the biggest of them all, you have Burger King and you have McDonald's. But I just think that it's not just the cuisine itself, it's also how many people are playing that game at that time. It's a, it's a demand supply game depending on which region you're operating in. There's certain there are certain areas where there's a certain demand. So like, for example, Mexican is not sought after mm. in all regions. Mm. <laughs> no, I'm, it's fair. Like, you know, there, there's, there are some areas where, you know, the, there will be no demand for uh, an 800 rupee burger. But there's some demand where the demand for an 800 rupee burger will outstrip that. So it is strategic. You have, I can't give you one answer for the whole market. It depends on which market you're thinking about operating in. That's where you got to see what is being underserved and what is being. If you're thinking about scale, it's a different issue. But if you're starting off, I think you're very well placed by finding out what what is the demand. And uh, the how, aggregators how are very happy to share this information with you. Yeah. You can go you to can them, them and you can ask them, hey, listen, where are you seeing a demand supply mismatch? Hmm. What is an area or gap that we can help fulfill? Right? And, and uh, they, they will very happily give you that data. And if you're willing to play that game, then yes, you, you do have a reasonable chance of success. I think, I think for me, when I started, I asked myself a very simple question. And I just said, I don't want to have anything on my menu that's available everywhere. And for me, that was a differentiation at that time. And I think it worked also because it's a different market. It's a different premium level. Um, but yeah, if you do something that everybody is doing, then the competition is obviously a lot more. You won't be... Specifically to answer your question, I think it's not about the cuisine. It's about which market, which geography are you serving what? For example, it might be easy to serve butter chicken in, 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 in Bangalore than biryani. Even and though that, biryani is more popular. data is best taken from the aggregators. They and do they give it just like that for free? They'll for share them? it because they want to build the ecosystem. So that's yes. one data that you're never going to have a problem getting. 
they will not give you data of the customer because they want to keep the the funnel to themselves right but and and uh, they will cite security reasons of course mm -hmm. for that but that data is not but any other data where there is a kind of a mismatch or mm -hmm. what is being ordered that is freely available so if you go and you ask them ye area mein sabse zyada kya order ho raha hai aur isme kitne players hain that data is available with them and that could be used as a tool for new people right this burger man it's quite nice. i guess you've not tried this one yet sola sola ye kya hai i don't know blam that looks like lamb do you want to try that what is this sadharan where is the chicken there must be some chicken burgers also guys but ab to thande ho gaye ab to nahi kya khaoge ab fried chicken burger cold is not going to work meri coffee bhi thandi ho gayi yaar fir bhi pee raha hu supply chain am i missing anything is there a way to negotiate efficiencies in the supply chain to reduce the cost of goods where do you buy supplies from as a restaurant owner multiple vendors all of us rely on hyperpure has been started by zomato that is mm. trying to you know mm. become a platform but at this point in time the vast majority of restaurants around the country are buying from individual vendors that they've had relationships for years and it's a good thing you should encourage this local farmer local vendor these guys the meat supplier the local butcher the local farmer the local vegetable guy even though he's a consolidator you know it goes to the mandi every morning picks up the stuff does that effort does that value add and then gives it to you mm. i think that should be supported but there are now alternatives there are larger platforms like hyperpure that are providing a platform and you puja we also use hyperpure now for our basic groceries and then we have why is that is it quality is it cost why convenience single vendor for many things mm. do you get credit that you get yes but not a lot but you get better credit from the individual, yeah, individual vendors and also so remember there's a relationship thing i think there's one hand you're saying support the local guy and the hmm. other hand we're going by we do, we do, we do a mix of what percentage oh, wait, yeah, a small percentage oh. like a fraction oh, a fraction okay a fraction is in single digits percentage oh. support the local so guy i do i love the local guy in fact i think that i have more of a relationship with the local guy hmm. far more than anybody then then i would get with the with a large platform again i don't want to get dependent also on one large player right i want to have my you know these these people. for example the the red meat the goat that i get in for the ncr region comes from one small butcher who used to first supply to my house i helped him build capacity i actually said listen i'm guaranteeing you this much purchase can you please start producing more for me and he built the system where now he's actually supplying to others hmm. main points one needs to keep in mind while opening a restaurant one big question location how do you guys location, narrow location. down on location because you've all said location 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 how do you what do you use individually to figure out the location i think all of us will have uh, some similar points and some overlaps um i i'm a little bit old school in this sense when it comes to a restaurant location a physical offline restaurant location I would like to visit at least once or multiple times if possible and go with the gut. I do rely on data, but like I said the data is fairly uh you know it's it's not really that accurate and it might be stale. It might be stale data that you're getting from these agencies. You should go and see other restaurants in the area go to gauge other restaurants. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. that's that's what that's how you do a site survey. Yeah. A site survey is a two day exercise. Yeah. It's not usually a one because you're going to invest 5 6 
two, three, five, six crore rupees into a restaurant. You should at least give it two days. Yeah. Makes logical sense. Sit there, put the time in. Mm. And I don't think, uh, even though I have a great business development team and people I really trust, uh, and, 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 and sometimes, especially for overseas locations, I'm not able to visit. I think it's important if you, especially if you're starting out, to mm. spend that time. To go and focus on that. For us, for me, at, at least for Bombay, it's been, because I know the city, I kind of know um, the pulse of it. I know where the product will really sell. But what we've been doing recently is actually using the cloud kitchen model to kind of understand a, a, a neighborhood. So for example, we started a cloud kitchen in Juhu for six months and we saw that that was really successful. And we said, okay, this market is successful. Let's open a store here. And we opened a store there. So we kind of using that and seeing, okay, That's we're doing Thani idea. now. That's a very good idea. Yeah. Backward. Very yeah, good. we're very doing Thani now and we're saying, okay, Thani is doing well for us. Malad didn't do that well for us. So we're kind of and testing. the capex of a cloud kitchen is significantly it's, lower. It's lower. It's, 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 it's nothing. It's fraction. So, fraction, mm -hmm. yeah. We're working with uh, an existing cloud kitchen. So we just supply goods there. Ah. So then it's and they just... And do, the, do their fulfillment. They do it. The, and everyone, everyone can Supply chain is controlled. Yeah. Not this seems like a great hack, no? Yeah. Supply to an existing crowd kitchen. Yeah. I mean, Test it out. The bell is entirely on that. Yeah. Riyaz? Well, you know, I think uh, location uh, is also a function of product, mm -hmm. uh, depending on what kind of product you want to offer. So that becomes very important. If you are, if you are a QSR business, you, of course, want to be in a fast-moving, you know, Audience. You want to be able to capitalize on foot uh, on footfall, mm. not just uh, I'm talking about walking, walking footfall, yeah. not not driving footfall because that doesn't really help us. Mm. Right. Uh, if you, if you're a slightly you, more sophisticated product, how do you count footfall? Well, what do you mean? Like if you're picking a location and you want to know what is the footfall of people just passing by that place, how do you count? So I mean, we get our data points like uh, from various agencies that that Again, are JLL, yeah, JLL, real estate agencies, uh, things like local brokers. There, there are local brokers, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of the information that restaurants get. And how does someone from, get this information from JLL? They email them. One forty-three ki last local jo nikalti hai, uh. Bombay Central se, wo jaati hai. There everybody knows everybody se. So we know that this restaurant yahan pe itna paisa kar raha. This is the sale this restaurant is doing. This restaurant is doing. It's anecdotally available. This information is largely On one available. particular train, why? Yeah, because this is where the crowds mingle. No? This is where all the hospitality guys go back. Mm. This is where the information comes in. They talk to each other. There's a loose connection. There's some guy who's working for my restaurant has worked with somebody else and somebody else's restaurant. There's always a network. So there's always a loose sharing of information mm. going on about how much business, you know, this one's doing. Everybody knows. Sales Char crore kar hai, ye restaurant, teen crore kar hai, ye restaurant, mm, hai. Everybody knows that in the industry. So mm. there, there's another form of triangulation. Another form of triangulation is to basically figure out from your suppliers mm. how much, you know, which restaurants are buying, which regions where they're supplying more, mm. your liquor companies. Mm. These are again uh, rich data sources. Mm. Aggregators, again rich data sources. So these are all mm. different data sources that are available to you and depending on what your product is and what kind of what kind of price points, etc. Mm. Um, that is again available. The demographic breakup is also available, so you can decide. So very interesting. Based on that, all three points very interesting. How mm. do you account for pilferage in accounting, and how do you prevent that from happening? Because if I'm new and starting a restaurant, that that could be a big issue, right? It is. It is. Unfortunately, it's a reality, and. Um, you have to learn to ignore some of it, but you have to have systems. See, this is a very, this is a very high touch point industry. 
there are many moving parts. Mm. And as a result, even though it, barriers to entry are low, you don't need a diploma to open a restaurant, the dependence on systems is arguably even higher than perhaps if you're making a ball bearing factory. You're buying from one vendor, you're producing in one machine, you know, not too many people. Here there are so many gaps, the bartender is one So what hacks do you use? What do you do? I don't think there are any hacks. I think there's a lot of, like I said, building systems. Do you systems. never outsource supply, like paying the supplier, ordering, all of that? In, in, so overseas we do that. Mm -hmm. uh, the entire accounting, for example, in Farzi Cafe London is outsourced because we don't, for one restaurant, are going to build a whole finance department. In India, we do it fully internalized. Um, you have to have systems. You, I cannot downplay the importance of, you know, like I said, it's, it is low barrier to entry, but there are just so many gaps. Mm -hmm. You have to have dependence on good people, build good, cult good culture, perhaps develop a direct relationship with your vendors. Mm -hmm. So when I say pilferage, I mean, you're, I'm assuming you're saying consumer comes and bills not raised or the vendor is Correct. supplying 10 Correct. and you're being charged for 12, right? Correct. Culture building, um, making sure there are enough audits. We, we, we do a bunch of audits, but I think it's more important. You just have to learn. You can't police people for too long. Can you remote control a restaurant? Can you not be physically at that particular branch and check for all this? Yeah, I mean, how is what, what are your methods of accounting and privilege? so basically um, opening stock, less purchases, closing stock is basic accounting. But what we follow is standard recipes, which are fed into your point of sale system. Your your inventory management system needs to be linked with a point of sale system. From from your sale of today, if I've sold. Let's say in a month, I've sold 300 coffees. It's very easy to calculate what my consumption of coffee should have been, what my consumption of milk should have been, what my consumption of sugar should have been. You know, and you get a little tolerance levels, but, but it's very, very easy to tell that. You have to be able to be very diligent in your audits and stock keeping. Right? Your bar inventory needs to be tallied every night. You cannot afford to not do it. Your 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 inventories need to be closed on the 31st of every month. Means they need to be closed on the 31st. Whatever happens, come rain or high water, it needs to be closed. Your stocks need to be, your first in first out methods need to be followed. They need to be followed. Barcoding needs to happen. It needs to happen. So there, are, there's various technology stacks which are available right now. Is there a particular software you can buy that helps you do this? Oh, yeah, you yeah. Many, there, there is there. Many software. What do you, what do you guys use? We have so we have a system called Rista. Just mm -hmm. dot pay startup. I use Rista too. And uh, we use them pay. for POS systems. Spell that? How do you spell Rista? R-I-S-T-A. R-I-S-T-A. ka Rista. Mm -hmm. And dot pay runs it. Good system. It's a new one, but it's fairly robust. And we also use the ERP system. So in different kind of restaurants, you need different kind of systems. Like I said, if you don't have SOPs, you're dead in the water. Because there are so many gaps. Right. And there are so many touch points. Uh, for Rista, the ERP system is, they also have an ERP. Mm. But you don't need a SAP, you don't need right. a SAP. Right. You need a basic material management system. Right. And that's linked to your POS and that can then identify consumption and you mm. tally that with the sale. Mm. One key thing in liquor-based restaurants such as Socials or Farzi Cafes with that have a high liquor component, we at our company do a daily inventory of every single bottle of liquor every night. And we have a weekly food cost report. So every week, we have a full food cost report, opening, closing, mm. consumption, mm. with a running, like a real-time food cost and COGS report. Mm. What that does is, it helps us track if there are anomalies. Mm. And the anomalies can be addressed timely. 
if you do it twice a month, half the month is over, you found out to adjust, it takes another week. And then you're already late. Your food cost is gonna jump, your beverage cost is gonna jump. So I think use the technology, it's there. For all the young people watching who wanna get into this, use the technology, it's there, it's cheap. It's not expensive yeah. and it's easy to learn. And there's enough How much talented. does it cost? I don't know the exact numbers, but it's in literally a few thousands per restaurant per month. A few thousands. A, a full uh, stack point of sale and inventory management system should cost you less than a lakh a year. Yeah, few thousand per restaurant per month. Any hacks? We use a system called Barometer, which is our material management system. Same thing, like it's 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 far easier for us because recipes are so specific as compared to alcohol. Yours um, is even better because of yeah. chemistry. So 100 grams of butter will always be 100 yeah. grams of butter. Yeah. So we we use Barometer and it's, it's the same thing. It's linked to your POS and then you tally it at the end of the day and no wonder your cogs are eighteen percent. I remember I remember reading a book about designing a menu long ago, and I realized then I don't remember it now. But designing the menu is an entire science, right? Like you have an anchoring bias, you price dishes you want to sell in a different section, ascending put, or descending. You put prices in a different manner. What is the science of designing a menu and some hacks that could work in improve sales? Riaz. <laughs> <laughs> um, a magician never reveals, no, okay. Uh, um, look, I mean, you could you could put in various, you know, NLP hacks in, into those things and you could come up with a lot of that. I think what the basic systems are, what is called menu engineering, where you mm. basically figure out what are the things that are your stars, which means that they're, they're moving fast and you're getting a decent margin, which is acceptable. What are your dogs? Right, which are where there are no margins and there are no sales. What are your workhorses means that they are getting enough volume, but they, they're a little lower on on profitability. And how do you position you the menu of, in a manner that what you want to sell sells more? Again, uh, you you put you know you put your there's anchoring bias mm. uh, where you place your uh, mm. you know menu, which is highlighted, which is not highlighted. Now, in addition to uh, printed menus, now we are increasingly. Having to become very savvy about digital menus, so right. you know we are, have to use the same um, cataloging things that are happening. So even within restaurants now, mm. we are not giving customers physical menus. Mm. We are we are let, encouraging them to order. Yeah, I don't like that. To I love physical menus, man. Yeah, yeah so do I. I because love. I can't. I can't take it. But, we've we've stopped the digital everywhere. But, but the millennials and the Gen Zs, they they the shutting out economy champions. Uh, they don't want. <laughs> Uh, to, to this look is not at, true. They, I'm a millennial. I can say that. But see, what we're seeing on the ground level is that we're more than happy, and we've seen actually we've seen higher AOVs on digital menus than really? we're seeing in printed menus. Also, the menu. Very interesting for me. The and me your menu design. So our menu. So firstly, let me address menu design in general. Mm. I think you have to look at it in two different ways. Mm. One is casual dining restaurants, like most of us here are are involved in. And then there is the QSR. The QSR is actually a science where mm. they realize where the cashier is standing. The TV screen above him is the first one to get the eyeballs. So he's the most expensive or the combos mm. will be there. The mm. burger, the single burger, which is the lowest value adding product for them mm. is literally stuck in the right corner. Mm. There's a literal book written on how McDonald's developed this system of human psychology. You're mm -hmm. working with psychologists to figure out where should they display what in order to enhance AOV because they're working on smaller AOVs. I think in a, my father has spent a lot of time building this. 
he always believed in starting with being India, the vegetarian section first, and going in an ascending order. So lowest to highest. So the most expensive product is at the bottom of that particular section, simply because uh, when people read the menu, you don't want to see a 2,000 rupee dish straight at the top, you're immediately turned off. You know, this restaurant is too expensive. Fuck, let That's me order just one dish. That's the opposite of the anchoring bias yeah. that you're talking huh. about. Correct, but in a, in a restaurant, uh, in a casual dining or a fine dining restaurant, it has to work the other way. But that's assuming you scan the menu once. Yeah. Mm. yeah. No, if, you can scan, if you're always going to scan the menu a couple of times before you make up your yeah. mind, mm. your anchor can be downstairs. Yeah, yeah that's true. And, and again, like I said, QSR and CDR and FDR are, two, are three different things. Mm. So when you're going to a restaurant like a Indian Accent mm. or, a, or you know one of his uh, saltwater grills or mm. premium restaurants, mm. you're going to see uh, a different kind of consumer, not mm. necessarily entirely is the is the purchase decision based on price. Mm. And vegetarianism, why I do that is because I feel that this one country, and again, I'm talking about Indian restaurants in general. Mm. I'm not necessarily talking about like, uh, you know, an Asian restaurant or mm. an Italian restaurant. Um, when you go as a family, mm. it's just more comforting to see a dal makhani or a paneer makhani or something like that because 45% of all consumers that come to my restaurants mm. are naturally vegetarian, which Why means- Why is that? I, I read 80%, 79% of India is non-vegetarian. It is, it is. Outside I don't know if the Haryana number is that high. Gujarat, I don't know if the number is that Punjab. high. Most of South India Punjab is non-vegetarian. Is, uh, 49% vegetarian. Punjab, Haryana, Gujarat. Punjab yeah. is the highest. Highest vegetarian. Haryana is the highest. No, Punjab. Really? 49% and you won't believe- Haryana, I thought the number is 65% or something vegetarian. Uh, I don't know. I th I've, I've read numbers that are 49% for Punjab being number mm. uh, the most vegetarian. And the most non-vegetarian is Kerala. Mm. Goa, West Bengal, you know. Karnataka, Tamil Nadu. There's a diagonal line that's running across India. It's yeah. not. It's not a. It's yeah. not a horizontal line. Yeah. From the northeast yeah. to to Goa, in that sense, there's a diagonal line, and I think, you know, south and east mm. is more is non-vegetarian. Non mm. Rice consuming, and north and and west tends to be a little bit more veg bread basket. And that comes. Menu hacks. For me, it's more about how the display fridge looks. Mm -hmm. um, that's what yeah. works for us. Yeah. So it's you eat with your eyes first, yeah. where you position what. Um, when do you do also do smell? Because a lot of new age coffee shops are doing, doing that. that. Yeah, I mean that's how Cinnabon, like yeah. you know, the perfume yeah. outside the store. Even KFC does yeah. it. Yeah. That Cinnabon yeah. smell in any. I mall love it. Was just yeah. like, and the McDonald's French fry smell. We actually haven't experimented with smell, but that's a great idea as well. Mm. So I'm taking away the 300 rupee macaroon and adding smell. <laughs> great. Yeah. Okay. And who do you guys use for menu designing? We do it fully internally, 100% internal. We have an agency that we work with. Who do you use? It's an agency called Starting Monday. Starting Monday. Yeah. <laughs> and Riaz? We'd see, we're trying to do everything that can help a guy starting a restaurant, right? Mm. Who do you use? Yeah. <laughs> ChatGPT. ChatGPT. Is it doing a good job? That's a good segue, actually. Is yeah, AI I, I, helping yeah. you guys in any way? In many yeah, ways, yeah, AI is helping us. Hmm. In in many ways, develop dishes. Uh, huh? Yeah. Actually. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if you if you have a concept, so the way we work with chefs, right? We we. I mean, and we kind of together, kind of, you know. Okay, uh, let's make a menu with on grammar. Can you make an alliteration? Can you make a metaphor? Can you make an oxymoron? Uh, or uh, can you make a menu on Bandra? Or can you make, 
uh, thing like that. So when you are, you are basically conceptualizing, and this is a really good exercise that we kind of get into. And then when you're trying to construct this and build this, right, the certain keywords going into AI helps chefs also be able to also present their ideas in 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 a better in a better manner, right? and that that helps. We, are you really pushing it to the extent? We, that we have just started using it. To be honest, we just started. If there is a video camera it. in your in your restaurant mm. which is recording eating behaviors and mm. reactions of people consuming the food, that's a lot of data collection, right? We are using our China's cameras. doing that with their, with their students mm. in all their schools. Yeah. We use our cameras to do uh, table heat mapping. Uh, we've yeah, so uh, so for example, we like to see which are the tables that people like to sit at, which are the tables that get filled first. Our camera technology is helping us do that. And what we is are, the likely table? We are we are, we are we are getting to see uh, we are getting table counts. We are getting to see male versus. Uh, female ratios uh, in in our restaurants. We are not listening in on them, and we are not reading their lips. Obviously, seeing their expressions. Mm. Um, Yet, <laughs> well, thanks so that's for something that we're going to do. Thanks for that's what we have our, our our servers because they. Yeah. they How do the you point. use what software do you use for this? Sorry, video. Uh, to Jarvis, I think we use Jarvis. Do you guys as use a, it as, well? as a app? We don't use table mapping, uh, but we're using AI very extensively. Not for menu generation, huh. but for image creation, okay, for even copywriting, mm -hmm. okay, and um, we're using it also for videos. Riaz, I've heard in our research that you're big on design, hmm. and design is a very big element. From the time you had a coffee shop called Mocha, I've actually been there. You had one in Kormangla back in the day, I think like a decade ago. How do you go about? We all established that ambiance is. If not as important as food, it is very important. How do you go about designing the interiors of a restaurant? Uh, how do you budget for it? Some hacks around that for somebody starting off. I think the design starts with how do you want your uh, <clears throat> how do you want your guests to feel? Right? Do you want them to feel uh, elegant? Do you want them to feel sophisticated? Do you want them to feel at home? Do you want them to feel comfortable? Do you want them to uh, to feel like they're transported into a magical land, right? I mean, I can have the same cup of coffee, which mm -hmm. I'm holding. Uh, you know, either I can hold it like this, mm -hmm. right? Which is a different thing. I can hold it like this, mm -hmm. or I can hold it like as a cuddle mug. And all these things are very tactile that actually go a very long way in how you feel. Things that you can feel, touch, you know, all materials have a temperature. They have a, a texture, right? And it, it conveys something. Leather conveys something, right? Velvet conveys something. It, it's it's feel. And then, of course, you want you want the experience to be in the same chord. You want mm -hmm. uh, you want to feel that particular way. So, how do you get somebody to feel more sophisticated? How do you get somebody to feel a little bit more elegant? How do you get somebody to feel like okay, you know, you can come here in your flip flops? And that all starts with design. And I think um, whether we like it or not, everything is designed. Whether we, we, we call it design or not, I, but it is design. I worked with Riaz's uh, friend, very good friend Ayaz, hmm. uh, for the design of my cafe when we did in Kolaba. It was beautiful, a, brother. It was, it was such a beautiful process, the whole thing, working with him. Um, and the, the you know initially he asked me, he's like, close your eyes, visualize, if you could visualize your space as a person, who, what would that person be? And, you know, when we were talking about, he, he was at, 
a young Sean Connery. And I said, no, 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 no. It's Monica Bellucci. Mm -hmm. And that's when, you know, then you got the little femininity, you got the space, you got, you got the finer touches. So I think it's, it's about understanding what the final feel of the place should be like. Design? I think the place. Do you guys to- personally get involved now after all this growth? Do you still partake in the design element of a new restaurant? I'd be out of a job if I didn't. Like I said, 10 years ago, mm. I would have spent less time or I would say like a third of what I do now. So design has become just so important to the world experience. It's no longer just about the food or the drink or design dictates how you feel. Does it make you feel good? Does it make you feel luxurious? Does it make you feel comfortable? Does it make you feel relaxed? So many things are dictated entirely by the design of the space. I don't, I think I have a decent aesthetic sense, but I like to rely on these really talented people. I think design has become so important Mm. that you have to have access to great people like them Mm. to be able to build these beautiful spaces Mm. because they can think in a way that at least a person like me can simply not. And they bring that extra, Mm. the fourth dimension Mm. in a way, which I really love. You you want somebody who's going to come to you with a genuinely thought out design with purpose, with origin, you know, with, with, with direction. You don't want somebody coming to you with a mood board from Pinterest. Right? Because that is what design has been reduced to now. You see something which is trending on Pinterest, you can bet your life that three months later, you're going to see Everyone 40 will. restaurants which are going to look yeah. exactly the same. Yeah. Right? My, so, my first ever store in, like the proper first store in Bandra, I remember the day I signed it, I went with my friend Pratish who runs a company called Starting Monday. And we went to a cafe and he turned the, the, the menu upside down and he said, close your eyes describe your store and I described it and as I described it he drew it out mm. and then we took that to a friend's dad who was an architect and said can you please replicate that and then we actually have the picture of the drawing with the store next to it Beautiful. it's like lovely mm. so wow. I feel lovely. like so I feel like it's not you know don't be you don't need uh, too much sometimes sometimes mm. you just need to know what you really want yeah and absolutely sometimes it's a clever use of paint mm. uh, and and you know just uh, the right kind of shade of sofa or upholstery. That's the magic. You don't need anything else. A lot of people said UGC. They talk about UGC like the holy grail. Uh, user-generated mm-hmm. content. They say to get through virality, you need to have user-generated content. How do you incentivize or trigger an audience to do that? So, for example, in our Palladium store, we have three giant macaroons stacked Mm. against each other and it's just everyone who enters that store just takes a picture with it like we don't ask them to we don't say stand here take a picture but they walk in and do you incentivize for them taking a picture and tagging you we don't actually instagram is a tool to be harnessed so a few years ago being instagrammable was very important i think the world has moved on see there's there are cycles in everything the restaurant industry has a cycle shorter than any other industry Every six months, food tastes change, design tastes change, entire, you know, the entire vibe around a certain, you know, area changes, entire markets change. Mm. So I think uh, the cycles are smaller in our industry than perhaps even in the fashion industry. Any other ideas around you? I think uniqueness definitely is what what gathers attention. I mean, that you, scientifically, that's what we're designed to do. Mm. We, we, we process a lot less information than we are receiving. Right? So novelty is one great, 
you know, way of actually. So would you add one novelty based? It, def- it definitely based is definitely a thumb stopper. It I definitely think, is. I think one I of just the things think those that days are done, gone. No, I think I, no longer I is novelty know, acquired. Yeah. When I went to Japan, now I think my whole list was an Instagram filled list of like all these like matcha filled. Drinks and like yeah, food, yes. stuff. Food, yeah. yes. I'm talking about from a design from a perspective. Design. From a design perspective, I think being Instagrammable. The food or design? Oh, I mean, both for you, Jesus. The food, I think, the more unique it is, the more effort it's you put into the presentation. That that's going to be forever. That, and all that. Oh. See, a lot, this, one of the largest a lot of this drama. Of liquid nitrogen in <laughs> the, <laughs> it got banned. Yeah. Till it got banned. They asked came and had a sip of uh, the liquid nitrogen in one of my restaurants. And a hole in stomach. my stomach. And uh, we had to get it repaired. He was is, kind enough to not let it out in the public till today. Is that a good There's a hole in my soul. <laughs> so that, that, you, that with? you need to fill. <laughs> to be how? Great <laughs> food? <laughs> Louis burger with gold <laughs> on it? No, I, I, I I'll give you spot, that. Yeah? Is oh that going to be so an increasingly important element, drama, to make a restaurant work? Used to be. Um, to get eyeballs in the yeah, beginning, I think. Beginning. I or to think continue? When Farsi Cafe opened, uh, 2015, mm. uh, 2014 end, um, it was important to have all this drama, table-side theatrics, molecular gastronomy. Since then, Farsi Cafe has done a 180 in the sense that with the cycle of things, the term molecular gastronomy has been, in a way, bastardized. Uh, people are not using it mm-hmm. to the full potential. They're just using you know, some of this drama, but not to effect. They're doing it as a, theatr- as a theatrical thing, not really helping the dish itself. So, like I said, um, the table side drama has diminished, but people still love some form of interesting action, dynamism. The correct word would be dynamism happening around their food. I think people enjoy that, but it's lost its importance. It's not important anymore mm-hmm. to get eyeballs. I think the only one thing that'll forever work for a restaurant and for it to grow organically is word of mouth. And that is the holy grail. That, that is the culmination of, culmination of everything. So things have to be remarkable, right? People have to find something to be able to remark about. It's right? very organic. Mm. So while, be while, while you can remove the bells and whistles mm. from like, you know, there's no need to basically send a post box with a burger inside or, you know, put, <laughs> put a, 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 a drink in a birdcage or whatever. All that is, is I think that is, a, but having good theater, is very important, right? So how uh, a great maitre d', for example, mm. is is phenomenal for a restaurant, right? It's worth their weight in gold. Something that'll get the remarkable thing going where they will feel the need to actually tell their friend that this is what they've experienced. I think if you have a really good meal or experience somebody, you want to share it with your friends, right? Like you mm. go out, you have a great meal. Mm. Someone's asking you for a recommendation, where should I go? So, oh, But I things like there. referrals don't work. They do. Hmm? Reference will work. Like If they're coming from a clean space, hmm. if they seem motivated, hmm. then they're not going to work. But people are smart enough to realize that. Hmm. Word of mouth is not a simple thing. It's a culmination of a hundred different things. Hmm. Service, the temperature, the quality of the napkin, the tableware, the food, the drink, how hmm. soft were people. Hmm. There's a big difference between service and hospitality. Service is simply the aspect of taking a drink and putting it on the table. Mm-hmm. Hospitality dictates how you made that patron feel. And I think that's a very big thing. And, and, and this is something that, you know, um, my, I think, arguably the greatest mm-hmm. restaurateur 
in the world has been harping on about for, for years in his new book, Unreasonable Hospitality, he talks about it, but it's something very deep. What is the name of that book? Everybody should read. Unreasonable Hospitality. Mm. It talks exactly about this. I think the question is, how do you get that? How do you get people to talk about it? Like The culmination ha, of all of this. Thing, you know, but, oh, you know, this is a great restaurant. Everything is fantastic. Mm. But what is that one thing that... There is no one thing. No, there is. There, there can be. There can be. That, oh, you, like I said. That oh, builds word of mouth? It could be a single like dish. It's There's just something that restaurants I go to for one dish. One dish. One dish, yeah. And that one dish is enough, you know, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I'm saying it, when you talk about... There are restaurants that have built their entire, for generations, have survived on one dish. How, how important is a chef? And because he becomes so cardinal to the business, how do you maintain the right bond where you don't... A, lead him on or B, put him in a position of power if you're a restaurant owner that he can leave and kill the restaurant if he likes. How do you, how do you negotiate chef relationships? Hacks. I mean, I'm the, the chef. chef. I am the chef, so. If you were to franchise and have another chef or if you were to mm. open a branch and have another mm. chef, what do you think you would do? Honestly, I think it's, uh, and I've seen this with friends with different restaurants where the chef was the main ingredient and then moved on and the restaurants continue to really doing, well, better. doing better after they've gone. And so, in some cases not. In some cases not. Mm. I just feel that it's, um, um, for me, it would just be, it's it's more about the product than than the chef. Um, I think. It Again, you know, I think that, um, I think we've all had experiences where we've put our faith in chefs and we've nurtured them. And we've given them everything that they've asked for. And, and at some point in time, they've gone looking for a better opportunity for, for, for a few. I think that sometimes that does break your heart. I think sometimes that does uh, make you feel that, you know what, screw that. I'm not going to do a chef-based restaurant again. But sometimes when you can really, really, really know how to handle the diva and make the diva really perform to the best of their capabilities, there's a different magic in that. So uh, again, depending on, you know, the kind of restaurant you want to do. Um, there are some restaurants where, you know, people are going to come and, you know, they will kiss the ring of the chef because that is what they're coming for. And some, they will come for the brand. And I think that if, you, if you've if decided um, to to work with a chef who is a diva, in, you know, in, like a virtuoso, a savant in respect, then you will have to be able to be sensitive to, to their sensitivities. So, so actually, when, when I had the Kolaba Cafe, I had a friend of mine who was Colombian and came to, to work as the head chef. And a lot of it was driven by him. You know, the place became about him. And a lot of the people that came, came for him. And then when he left, I was in that position where I was like, oh my God, are people going to come back? But in fact, our sales just grew after. Um, so I feel like it's, um, mm. uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of, Funny in that manner, yeah, where if is. you, it is bittersweet. Yeah. I think that I think, look, I think it, it, when it's symbiotic, it's beautiful. But I think that no one organization or one person is bigger than the sum of the parts. Yeah. I think that. Okay, guys, where do you <laughs> hire restaurant staff from, and is there anything? in particular, you can do to retain that stuff? Are there any hacks in this industry? Riaz, you want to go first? Um, I think that uh, uh, we have, 
Fortunately, I think word of mouth as a good employer is very, very important. Referrals for us are the number one uh, recruitment source. Um, we encourage our staff to bring us more staff. That is the shortest and fastest way of, of getting good quality people. Of course, you need to have a robust training program. Uh, you need to know, okay, you know what, you want to put somebody on the floor? What can you do to get them on the floor? What are the basic skills they need? I am not a big believer in um, in education. I think it's completely a waste of time in, in the hospitality business. When you say education, you mean? Any kind of degree in the hospitality industry. It's, it's, uh, Thanks. Sorry. <laughs> I, it's my sorry. No, I, okay, so I... Okay, sorry. I think he means for front of house stuff. No, I don't mean for shifts. Mm. Um, you know, FCI and CI and Cordon Bleu, of course, bring a certain sensibility. But when it comes to general stuff, I, we are really not looking at the institutions. We are looking more at the pedigree of the institutions mm. that they have worked at. Because then you can really tell, you know, where they're going to come from. You know, that an OCLD, which is the Oberoi School of Learning and Development, uh, pass out, is going to be of a certain cut. So firstly, I think you select people. You should hire people that get pleasure in giving others pleasure. How do you do that? It is and absolutely based on, it is absolutely based on a good talent acquirer. Who Somebody. Do you, who do you use? We have in-house. We have, obviously right. we use, the talent acquirer uses portals and uses, number one thing is always going to be referral. You said, your headhunters hire from Head, portals No, not even headhunters. So we call them talent acquirers. So they use a multitude of things. I think the number one method is always going to be, like you said, referrals. Mm. Because these are people that have already seen the work culture. They've seen how it is to work in that particular position. Um, what are the benefits, etc. right? And that's what is our number one methodology. But mm. having a good talent acquirer who is able to ensure that the tick marks are ticked in a certain kind of person. Like I said, a person who gets pleasure uh, by giving pleasure, mm -hmm. I think, you know, a person who feels happiness when he gives pleasure to others. I think that's a very, very good, uh, you know, yeah. uh, virtue to but have is, in a is person. Is there a mechanism to do that? Like if I have to hire a hundred people and there is a filter I want to put in place. It's interview process. Mm. You have to call them over. You have to meet them. Mm -hmm. You have to figure out if they fit within the culture of your organization. And how do you keep them? Keeping is the is the harder part. Benefits? No. Approachability and accessibility. To yourself. If your HR, not, it's, it'll be hard for the founder of the company to do that. If you have an HR and a management system, a hierarchy, not just at the HR level, but also at the restaurant level, that is highly accessible and approachable, then that'll have a huge impact mm -hmm. in making sure that your retention rates are high. Now, mm -hmm. in, typically in the QSR, the retention rates, in fact, the attrition rates are over 100%. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about 120% attrition, which means more people in a year, in a set finite period, leave mm -hmm. the organization than actually join. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the CDR space, if you're at between 30, 40%, it's good. Mm. So um, I think just be there for them, have policies that are empathetic, have a listening ear, have an HR and a management system within the restaurants. So the first port of call is always going to be the manager. There has to be some basic empathy training with the managers. They have to have, uh, they have to also be able to impart culture. I think building culture is more difficult than building competence. Mm -hmm. You can build competence into a person. You, if they're not trained, you can train them. How are you going to build culture? That comes through a concerted effort from every level of hierarchy. 
Pooja? Um, when I started, it was basically just getting people from, again, referrals, started with a small team, trained them. And then as we started growing, it was through agencies that specialized in hospitality graduates. Also, schools are a great Which agency is good? Who do you um, use? There are a couple. Um, not sure of their names exactly. You don't get um, front of house staff though? No. But for kitchen and stuff, for for us as well, like just going directly to schools and uh, recruiting Calm. directly. That helps. Yeah. yeah. Calm.com is, 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 a, is great. Nokri.com and Calm.com is specializing in… Um, hospitality. In hospitality. Is that who you use? I do use Calm. And for us, LinkedIn works really well LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn does work well. Okay. Next and, question. And it's, uh, and also, There's a new one that's come out. There's a new one that's Rashmi's? come out by Rashmi Udesi called yeah. Hospitality Hope, mm. which is really good. So it's, it's a website? Yeah, it's a website started by uh, yeah, Rashmi very, very good. Database. That is the best. That's, that's, that's actually the that. best. She's not taking a single rupee. She's doing this, you know, as her... Rashmi Udesi, she's, she's a very really prolific writer. And she's getting really good Fabulous. talent hooked up with international uh, restaurants of real good repute. So Hospitality Hope, if you're looking to go abroad, mm -hmm. much to our detriment, mm -hmm. uh, Hospitality Hope. Is the place. But I was just saying that you cannot retain everybody. Mm -hmm. right? And I know that always in the hospitality business is the best server <laughs> who will have the drinking problem or is the guy who's going to go and disappear for days on end, not show up. But you have to be able to recognize them first. And once you recognize them, you've got to reward them. And then the way to retain them is to tell them that, look, we see you, mm -hmm. we've spotted you, mm -hmm. we are going to put you on a track, we're going to put you on a journey. Mm -hmm. Three years from now, this is where you're going to be. Mm -hmm. Five years from now, this is where you're going to be. And you stick with us seven years from now, that's where you're going to be. Is and, that and the then, key? And then deliver. Showing them a path of growth. You, you have to show them, and you have to show them a path of growth. Because otherwise, there will always be ifs, buts. Is it is primarily that, financial growth or is it a growth of stature? It is both. It is both. It is, both, uh, it is a growth in, in your uh, designation as well as growth in salary. What is the bigger trigger emotionally? Look, emotionally, you know, having the designation of a manager is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Having the, the designation of an executive or executive is a big deal. Right? People want that. They want to be able to know that they are, you know, in, in a position of authority. But at the end of the day, that doesn't fill your stomach alone. You need to be able to have cash. Service charge goes a very long way mm -hmm. in making sure that we can retain our talent, ensuring that you know, is distributed. They benefit from the company that builds teamwork in. Uh, as Zorawa said, a very strong culture really, really helps because they know that this is a family mm -hmm. and this collective responsibility, you can't let each other down. So these things cumulatively add up. But at the end of the day, this is what I've learned from the Shetties and the UDP restaurant. Mm. I'm from there, by the way. So that, that is, you cannot break a Shetty restaurant guy. Why? Mm. Because he knows he's dishwashing today. If he puts his nose to the ground, if he does the hard yards, 10 years from now, he'll be managing his own restaurant. 15 years from now, he'll be a partner. He knows it. And, and this, they have a beautiful system where they send money home uh, to the wives and to the mothers. They take care of the kids' education. They take care of all their medical needs. These guys are given a place to stay and a little bit of pocket money. But this system is fantastic and there's a lot to learn. But the important thing is that a clear path, career path is given to them. And if you do this and if you stay this long, this is where you will go. And that is good enough for them. It is the uncertainty. 
of of you know that progression uncertainty of where they will be a couple of years from now is what causes unrest in my opinion makes sense uh, festivals seasonal stuff if i were to be starting a restaurant today as a 22 year old how do i incorporate that into my business plan is it a big part for us yes christmas um, diwali yeah so we start with i mean for us season actually starts in september mm-hmm. um august actually you start with rakhi and then you go to ganpati at least in bombay you have ganpati then you have diwali then you have christmas then you have valentines day and then you have holi and then after that it's a little bit of a slow and then this whole season is also a big season for like weddings parties people are doing caterings so we do a lot of that and then april to uh, april to july is kind of like a little bit slow so we have to figure out what we do during those months so seasonality at least with us is quite important and for you guys as well it's a big thing seasonality so there are two different things one is i think your question was also regarding festivities right india is a deeply spiritual country um there are many festivals that happen that have a direct impact on the business of your restaurant or delivery service mm-hmm. for example you have ganpati in bombay when you have ganpati in bombay you're going to see a reduction in dining out you're going to see a reduction in non-veg consumption you're mm. going to see a reduction in alcohol consumption mm. people are going to st- not go out as much <laughs> when you have navratra in north india you have a major reduction mm. in the number of people going out non-veg consumption goes down very sharply mm. right so i think there are two different things seasonality affects everybody equally uh, festivals uh, affect certain kinds of restaurants a vegetarian restaurant would be less impacted during navratras in north india whereas a non-veg restaurant or a, or a bar would get more deeply impacted uh, these are just the realities of being in the country you have to mitigate this by in a sense planning in advance mm-hmm. coming up with special things like a navratra thali mm-hmm. or um, better offers better deals during these specific times and these tiny things can significantly throw up revenues right they can mitigate i don't think they can throw i don't think they can completely resolve the the you know the impact or you know completely absorb the impact they definitely can mitigate to a large extent and it's it's just the reality of being in a country like india where there are um, festivals that have a huge impact on the socio economic fabric that will have um, an impact on your business directly mm-hmm. and as a result you're going to have to mitigate in some way shape or form okay so at the end of this podcast uh, did i miss anything guys i think um, But firstly you've covered everything <laughs> this is a crash course in restauranting uh, took us years to do this you just gave everybody the lowdown um i think we can charge a lot of money for this podcast if you were to monetize it 7 hour podcast at the end of 7 hours 7 hours 7 hours okay 6 hours at the end of this ab mujhe bar bhi nahi dikh raha shayad 12 baje band ho jata hai we had great keema We raged. We raged for ever. another two hours, and then I We go to the airport. We had some amazing straight. macarons with some amazing coffee. <gasps> Can we He please does? talk about that? Please. I am not. Can you have, plug in a part of the video. <laughs> you ha- you have. Plug it in. Plug it in. Plug it. The one where I am looking good. Huh. We have to talk about this. Yeah, we are talking about it. The recording. Oh. Are we done? <laughs> no. <laughs> no such thing. Jhalak diklaja, my God. Okay, we, do you still dance? So I dance extremely poorly on TV. I don't know how I on was on national TV. On national, so 
I'll tell you what I learned out of this whole thing. Wait, before you tell me what you learned out of it, what made you do it? My wife. My son was adamant against it because he thought my being on that show and being the foolish dancer that I am will make a fool out of him in his school. My wife said, you've always been the kind of guy who's taken on these kind of tough things that you're not comfortable with. Things that are out of your comfort zone. That's the only reason I did it. The obviously other reason was to be on a large scale TV show. Let's be very honest about it. By being on that show, and I hadn't done MasterChef. I'd done MasterChef in 2016, so like several years. I'd done other stuff, but not of relevance. This was a fairly large show. I took it on as a challenge. I even now don't know how to dance well, but I had the best choreographer who put her, her life energy into me. She tried her best. And the only reason I survived almost half that, well, actually half that show, was because I felt a sense of responsibility towards Suchitra. So big shout out to Suchitra, you're like a rock star, I love you. I'm gonna see you in Bombay very soon. She's my sister. She and her husband were my choreographers. They were the wind beneath my wings, literally. And they were able to extract something out of me that I simply did not know I had. And to this day, I think it's simply a testament to her efforts, number one, and be my ability to not give a damn. Nice. I think that's, that's the beautiful. coolest thing, not that's giving a damn. That's beautiful. Right? Absolutely, I wouldn't have the no, you're petrified I'll do it. of. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> you would. Naturally, yeah, you do. You're natural. You're doing master chef. Listen, it proves it. Okay, so this show uh, is meant solely as an exercise in education for entrepreneurs. We've all been lucky uh, to help Touch other wood. people be in the right position to get lucky. We build this content and, and you know, thank you guys for flying down to Bangalore and spending the amount of time you have. Uh, I think this will be incredibly useful to so many young people who want to start a restaurant. Another thing we do is we don't have any uh, sponsors. We don't do any advertising. And at the end of every show, we try and do, uh, should I call it a good deed? I don't know, but we, we kind of like, do something to pass the baton along and help somebody else. Uh, in the last episode, for example, we decided to fund a young entrepreneur trying to build a business in fashion or in cosmetics or in home decor who's under the age of 20 to 23. Uh, so I'd like to suggest that we come together and fund a young uh, boy or girl, which we will all pick together. We'll open out applications and you'll get thousands of them. What fun? And uh, we will fund someone who's unlikely to get funding otherwise. Let's say below the age of 22. That, yeah? Cheers to that. Yeah. You know, count this. me in. Yeah. And the only thing I would ask so that we can put it out is, is there an amount of money you would like to allocate to that young individual so we can put it out and we can get applications? Definitely happy to um, help you know, some young restaurant to get their feet off the ground, make sure they have a safe landing, you know, point them in the right direction. Um, and mentor, outside and of mentor, money. Yeah. yeah. Guide. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. All of that. My Instagram, what do you think is, is a good my Instagram what do you page think? is open. I'm not allowed to invest in other <laughs> restaurants. I don't, I don't think In my personal capacity, uh, in my I personal capacity. <laughs> not allowed to <laughs> do that, sorry. Any, any amount, amount doesn't Yeah, yeah I'm okay, I'm, whatever you suggest. I'm very happy. What are you looking for, I'm in? Uh, should we do, say, young kid starting a restaurant, how much money would he need? 50 lakhs enough to give a moonshot together? Yeah. 
50 lakhs, you won't be able to build a big restaurant to be very honest. Okay. Why not look at even a cloud kitchen potential? Yeah. Should we or a restaurant? A restaurant is going to cost more than that. Okay, I'll do, let me start it off and say I'll do 25 lakhs. Okay. You guys can tell me an amount. It doesn't have to be big or small, just something. Random number. We'll sum it up and we'll find a kid. I'm very happy to mentor as much as I can. I'm yeah. not physically allowed to invest in, okay. in other I'm not businesses. physically allowed to invest, but I'm going to personally, perhaps in my personal capacity, do it and I'll give about 15. Yeah. 10. Okay, 50. That's so, 50. And we will mentor him with time and I, I have less to add here, but you guys have so much skill set in this. But it'll be an interesting project. We'll find this one young, talented kid. Absolutely. And we'll see what we can make of it. Yeah. 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 Sounds Great. good. Which, uh, according to you, which will go best? With your coffee? Yeah. Uh, passion fruit. Uh, passion fruit I don't have. But the sea salt will go really well. So, yes, but tequila like and margarita. Or citrus one. Like this one, yeah. The sea salt will go really well. Then not lavender, not rose. I have a question. Why do I have one macaron less? Sure. They thought you needed one less. Okay, come on, start. Uh, no, no, no. He's always, he's never been Zarabha afraid of uh, But depend, don't make me dance. <laughs> so we're gonna make you, we're gonna make you uh, touch one item and tell us what it is. Smell one item and tell us what it is. And taste one item and tell us what it is. Yeah. While you're blindfolded. Really weird. Yeah, <laughs> this one you just smell. Oh my God! It smells like achar. Mirchi ka achar. I don't know. No, mirchi ka achar. My <laughs> God! It is mirchi ka achar. Yeah. You're kidding me. It's like a biscuit or something. Or oh, broke. It's a biscuit. It's a biscuit. I don't know. Apology. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Yeah. It is. Yeah. Kidding me. Okay. Did you make a cheesecake with it? Almost. I make a cheesecake out of Parleji at Farsi Cafe. <laughs> okay, and the last one you have to taste. He can see, guys. He can taste see. Taste is easy for he me. He can see. You can eat that. Chit Kat. Oh! <laughs> taste is my speciality. Not bad. Citronella? Rose water. Rose water. Yeah. Why was it? Yeah, rose, rose water. water. <laughs> 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 I will lose everything in rose water. I will lose everything in rose water. Okay, yes. Taste. It better not be a grasshopper or something. <laughs> it's red ants. Oh, that's slimy. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Does it have batteries? <laughs> oh, oh, Why can't he eat it? Bear? No way! Bro! Bro, no, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, come on. Banana. Banana, banana man. Huh? Every okay, time you said Indian, I was drinking. Jeez, so weird. What is that? Is that an insect? Is it like... Are they baby coconut? No. Anar? Yeah. Mm, not Got it. Pomegranate. Yeah. I'll go for this one. Next. Elaichi. You're giving her all ingredients she uses. You know that, right? Every day. You have to taste Can I say it? that? Yeah, you have to taste it. What the f*** are you giving me? <laughs> like Imli. Yes. Imli ki chutney. Nice. Both of us got all three. Can oh, I go and take one second? Give me. Just smell. Cinnamon. Not bad. Okay, taste this. Taste it. <laughs> if you guys have drink given it, me something it, weird, it, no, see tomorrow. It. Lemon. 